Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to something I've been dreading for about two years now. Uh, just a quick note. I was hopeful to have the new uniform ready to go for these, but I have limited times in which I can record, so I had to go ahead and go with the uniform I have now. Uh, hopefully by the time I finish this six-movie series, I'll be able to go ahead and have the proper uniform ready to wear for you guys. Now, I've done big ruminations in the past, but I, I'm actually really curious how long this one's going to be. Let's see. Here we go. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six, six pages of notes. I don't know if that's a record or not, because I don't keep track of that kind of thing, but holy hell. I've been daunted by this. That's why I say I'm not quite looking forward to it. As much as I call these some of my favorite works ever, uh, right up there in the top five kind of a thing, this is this is something that is a little bit daunting to go through. It is an overwhelming task. And if I'm being 100% blunt, I'm not actually physically capable right now with time limitations and the requirements of my show and my real-life obligations to actually do the full no really in-depth treaties on these movies like I want to. So I apologize, but you know I'm hopeful that me doing my best here to do the best that I can in order to give you my usual rumination analysis thing is going to be sufficient. These movies have been requested for about three years now, off and on. Back, uh, if for those of you paying attention, historically speaking, a little over three years ago, I wasn't actually taking, like, I didn't have the floodgate system in place. And the previous cycle, there were a few people who requested the movies, but some of them were willing to wait until the Hobbit trilogy was fully ready on, on extended Blu-ray. And some of, some of them were like, you know, yeah, maybe you just look at this one. So it wasn't quite enough backing to go through all six movies. This, cycle, several of those people and several other people banded together and basically put all their requests into one, and I even got a few side donations specifically to fund the next six weeks of videos that you're going to be seeing. Yes, we'll be going through all six movies, to make that clear. This is going to be a little bit of a preamble, by the way, if that's not obvious, and this is probably the only movie I'm going to give a preamble to other than the first Hobbit movie, just making that clear. Let's cover the biggest thing right off the bat. This is an analysis of the movies, not the books. Now, I am aware of the books, obviously. In fact, I'm going to tell you a little story about that in a minute. But this is specifically an analysis of the movies. I'm not sure I would be capable of doing an analysis on the books. As I've said before, I tend to disallow book rumination requests in general, since books don't really fit the format of my ruminations in general. And, well, I'll get to the other reason later. <clears throat> But I want to make one thing clear. Aside from a few specific points I'll bring up here and there, I will not be referencing the books, nor will I be discussing how the movies are different from the books. In fact, I'll be going out of my way to remove the books from my mind while I am going through these movies. Now, I want to make really, really abundantly clear why I'm doing that. First of all, this is not Star Wars. The Star Wars books, the EU books, were a functional part of fleshing out the movies, and diversing them from each other was something that I felt I was not capable of doing, because one rested on the other, rested on the one. It was like this, right? So to remove the books from, from consideration when it came to Star Wars, 
was something I, I just couldn't do. So much of the theory crafting, so much of the analysis of characters and motivations and setting and locations and technology, all of that rested upon things that had been fleshed out and gone more into depth in, in the books. Here, this is a completely different situation. I, I often like to think of the Lord of the Rings movies as remakes of the Lord of the Rings books, as opposed to, you know, the Lord of the Rings books put into movie thing. Now, of course, the technical term is an adaptation, but usually an adaptation means trying to stay close to the source material. And while this does stay close to the source material, anybody who knows the books knows that the movies diverge rather significantly from the, uh, you know, the books and movies diverge rather significantly when it comes to several key points, most notably being tone and themes. And a lot of the characters are completely functionally different. Aragorn comes to mind immediately as a character who is almost completely different from the books to the movie, and so does Boromir for that matter. So in order to properly do my own form of analysis on this, I needed to, to to focus on what it is that we have here. So there are several things and you know speculations and comments that I have in my notes here over the next few pages that I'll be commenting on, which some people will be tempted to say, oh, well, the books disagree with that, or that's explained in the books. I'm ignoring the books. I will only be bringing it up when I consider it to be relevant. Okay, I want to make that clear right up front. I might even say that at the beginning of each video, just to make it abundantly clear that I'm ignoring the books for this. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is why I'm doing this particular order of the films. Originally, I was going to do Hobbit 1, 2, 3, and then Lord of the Rings 1, 2, and 3, you know, in chronological order, in other words. But after some thought on the matter, I decided to do it in production order because... In many ways, the Hobbit trilogy was specifically designed to be a functional prequel to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Now, that, that may sound like a duh, but what I mean by that is it's a part of the movie trilogy. It adheres to things that happen in the, the Lord of the Rings movies and sets up and foreshadows and otherwise certain scenes work better because they are directly referencing or establishing matters that will come up in the movies in ways that are completely against the way the books worked. Kind of part of my earlier point, right? And I feel that as a proper prequel, you know, it, it, a properly done prequel, my opinion, should be seen after you see the thing it is a prequel to. And I stress that properly done part. And I do feel personally that the Hobbit trilogy is a properly done prequel to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But this is basically the MCU situation. For those of you who don't know what I mean by that, the MCU is the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which has no real continuity connection to the actual comics. And that brings me to my next point. I might as well get this out here right now. I, I thought about literally saying this first. I'm just going to drop the bombshell. I don't like the Lord of the Rings books that much, or The Hobbit. Bombshell dropped. If that is something that you feel is is going to make you not watch the rest of my analyses for the next six weeks, or not watch the rest of the vis this video, or ban me or hate me forever, then you're welcome to do so. But it is the truth, and I'm not going to shy away from it. I love the setting of Lord of the Rings. I absolutely adore it. In fact, the only, you'll notice that of the books I listed, the Cimmerillion is not one I listed, because I actually enjoyed reading that. I find Tolkien's, I know it's, I know some people pronounce it Tolkien and some people pronounce it Tolkien. I'm probably going to divert to Tolkien because that's what I've said my whole life and that's what other people have said to me my whole life. Tolkien's works and, and setting building are phenomenal. He knows how to make a fantastically in-depth setting and to really make 
the why things happen, not just what happened, which is a critical uh, thing that many people, many setting builders, many world builders don't, don't seem to grasp. And it's something that I try to aspire to myself and has been a huge inspiration for me when crafting the Imperium. So I have a huge respect for the Lord of the Rings setting, you know, the, the Middle Earth setting and everything about it and the, the, the concepts and the cultures and the food and the art and the architecture and the languages and all that. Fantastic. Reading the books, eh, not so much. I actually want to share a quick story with you, because why not? <clears throat> I remember the first time I re uh, read Lord of the Rings. And in fact, it was one of the books alongside the original Jurassic Park, and uh, I actually can't remember the other one all of a sudden. Wow! <laughs> I've been going off a very little sleep to get these, these videos done. It, it, was, it was one of several series of books that I read that led me toward... Oh, Anne McCaffrey, Dragon, Dragon Riders of Pern. That was it. It was it was one of several series of books I was reading for a contest in school when I was quite younger than this, and it was the I don't know how many of you ever had this. So you have to each page that you read for a book was like one mile, and then like your your class would race and add up all the pages you read and race across the country. This is not bragging, because I don't really even at the time I didn't really think I deserved this, but I actually got an award for that contest because I by myself. I'm not kidding, by the way. The word's right there. I'm not going to bring it out and show you because that'd be stupid. But it's it's for like 14,000 pages or some ridiculously huge amount. I read tons. And I'm not bringing this up to brag, but I'm bringing this up because it was the first time I really became, to quote Twilight Zone, a reader. It was the first time I really wanted to read for entertainment's sake rather than just, oh, it happens to be something that I'm reading. I was always very literate. That was thanks to my mom and the way she raised me. But this is the first time I was like, ooh, this is fun to read. And that's when I was exposed to a huge variety of literature. I basically ate that library alive and then went to another library and started consuming those books as well. But like I mentioned, there were three uh, series that in particular caught my attention. Lord of the Rings, relevant to this one, of course, and the other two that I mentioned earlier. And Lord of the Rings, I didn't like it, but it sparked my imagination. Like, reading through it was, I remember distinctly, reading through it was a chore but I actually had a sheet of paper with me that I was just scribbling notes on ideas because it was such an invocative setting. Even then, as a child, it, it struck my imagination. One thing I started doing many years ago, uh, at this point about a decade ago now, is I decided to go back and start re-examining things that I either liked or didn't like as a child to see if you know the advantage and perspective of age would change that. It's something I did recently with uh, the Star Trek movies and the original Star Wars movies, actually, and I talked about that on my show as well. And I went back and reread Lord of the Rings trilogy. Actually, I guess this would, been, this would have been over a decade ago now. Damn. I actually can't remember my exact years. It, it was before this movie came out. <clears throat> and I went back and reread them, and no, they were, I actually disliked them even more than I originally did, because they were just so dry. So I am sorry uh, for that opinion. <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm, I'm sorry because I know that that opinion is going to push a lot of people away from me and from my videos, and you know what, that's just something I'm going to have to accept. I'm not going to lie to you. But that leads me to something that I mean, there's a fair number of people who have that general type of opinion I've noticed in my years of talking about Lord of the Rings, because I am reasonably versed in the setting, reasonably. The next thing I'm about to say is going to make a lot of people hate my guts, and I've already actually said it, but I'm just going to lay it out there to make it clear. I love these movies. These are among my favorite movies of all time, and I am quite a bit of a movie geek in addition to being a video game geek and a music geek and a 
literature geek and a racing geek and a couple of things. Anyways, point being, <laughs> of all the vast majority of movies I've been exposed to, these three are right. I, I consider them one film, just like I consider the original Star Wars trilogy one film. And they're right up there. They have been battling it out with the original Star Wars trilogy for the number one slot for many years. That's how much I hold these films up there as true works of art. Not just enjoyable, but well-crafted, thematically significant, excellent showcasing of setting, of characterization, of directing, of, of writing, of, of everything. Everything that, that, that got, went into the crafting of these movies was phenomenal, in my opinion. I mention this because I have gotten a lot of flack for liking the movies more than the books. And I have actually had, live on stream, I've had some of my own streamers basically, you know, get upset at me and anger me and basically say, I just gotta walk away from this because of how uh, divergent the opinions were on that one. <clears throat> now that I've dropped all that, why don't we talk about a couple other things before we get into this. So, I'm not doing a 100% full, in-depth, no really behind-the-scenes rumination. I kind of already referenced that before. One of the reasons is for the ridiculous amount of behind-the-scenes material. Just in the Blu-ray that I've got right here in front of me. In addition to the movie, we have no less than three Blu-rays. Hours, multiple hours of content of behind-the-scenes stuff, of building up, of talking about Tolkien of talking about the construction of the work, of talking about the adaptation of the work, of talking about the implementation of the work, an absolutely ridiculous amount, and that's just in this one. And that's true in all three of these, and then there's the other behind-the-scenes, and then there's the other making-ofs, and there's the documentaries that went into it, and the the little uh, the book, I can't even think of the name of, that was written just about the making of these films. A ridiculous amount of behind-the-scenes material is available for The Lord of the Rings, which is actually kind of unusual uh, for most works that I look at. Most of the time when I look at a fictional work for this show, I struggle to get any information on it. It's something I've talked about recently. It's something that will be a problem in the future, too, especially when we have contradictory information because people weren't all writing it down or documenting exactly what went into it. This is the exact opposite problem, and I'm not sure how to deal with it other than I'm going to do kind of a my usual pass of the behind-the-scenes stuff pretty much right here, and I'm going to be talking about some of the behind-the-scenes stuff right up front, in this film, and then we're basically just going to talk about Two Towers and Return of the King separately. Then we'll have another kind of a pass of a behind-the-scenes when we get to the Hobbit trilogy, and then just talk about the Hobbit 2 and Hobbit 3, okay? I want to talk about the attention to detail. I, I want you to picture a video game real quick. Okay, I, I know that's hard, especially for some of my viewers. I want you to picture a video game in which a camera is panning across a scene really quick in an establishing shot, okay? Now, most video game art departments will basically make tiled backgrounds. It may not literally be tiled, but what I mean by that is repeatable. You know, it's just, here's a looping series of buildings or a looping series of crowds, and that way they only have to actually make, like, this much space and then tile it out to fill out this, right? That's the norm. That's how you usually approach that kind of a thing. However, one thing I've noticed in my career, and just before that as well, is that the really good video games tend to actually bother to personally craft all that stuff. So when the camera shot pans over, there's actually a different crowd, a different series of buildings, different mountains. You know, it's not tiled. It was hand-designed to sh for this one panning shot, right? Now, logically speaking, it's understandable why most people do 
the, the tiled approach to that. It's because of the fact that it's not necessary. It's just a, for an establishing shot. You don't need to go to that level of detail for something that is basically just a background character. It's actually something that led to a common thing, in, especially in earlier RPGs, when you could always tell when the major characters were because the major characters actually had real art design put into their sprites, whereas all the NPCs were very generic looking. It, you know, and, and that kind of highlights one of the problems with that approach, too, because it's basically a big glittering sign to the audience saying this is unimportant. And more to the point, your eye catches it. You notice it because it's not quite right. By contrast, if they did the full in-depth thing for the panic shot, you'd probably never even notice it. I know this is an old saying and worthy of repeating, but... Or it has been repeated many times, but is worthy of repeating... It, really good visual design is the stuff you never notice unless you're paying attention. Same with audio design. So the fact that you don't notice it means they did their job well. And so when that camera pan shot is happening, you see like this guy over here and there's a dog in the distance and these people walking over here and there's some kids doing whatever, playing on hopscotch and there's a building and all of that registers in your mind and it doesn't trigger any flags because to you it's normal. But that helps sell the scene for you, the viewer, the player, because now you are more immersed. You are buying the fact that what you're seeing is a thing actually happening, rather than in the tile situation where it kind of pushes you out of it just a little bit. It's like, oh, well, this this is just a whatever. This is just a scene in a video game. You with me? Lord of the Rings, all three of all six of them, really, but all three of these trilogy especially, do that in spades. There are so many shots where the camera pans over an area, or there's an establishing shot, or there's a background shot, or there's a... One of the, one of the earliest examples of this, actually there's, there's like 50 examples of this right at the beginning, but let's go to one of my favorite examples of this right at the beginning, is there's a camera that's centered around, uh, excuse me, it's, it's just kind of slowly roaming through Bilbo's home, okay, in Bag End. And I want you to rewatch this movie sometime. I wish I could just have it up on the, the green screen here. I want you to rewatch this movie sometime and just pause as the camera's panning through Bag End. I bet, I, I would I would bet money that most of you never even really took it in for a moment, but the sheer level of detail that went into that set, that's basically just there to be background, is astonishing. And Lord of the Rings does that all over the place. There is an, an immense, incredible amount of detail to the backgrounds of this stuff. To the chainmail, to the weapons, to the to the rune scripting, to this architecture, to the trees. It's it's mind blowing. And I could I could if I was actually going through this, it would be interesting to do a, a separate playthrough of this episode of this of this movie where i just pause every like five seconds because that's about how often it would be and say look at this detail look at what they did look at it look at it just take it in because it's everywhere next time you watch these movies i encourage you if you haven't already to to really soak in the level of detail because it is phenomenal now um let's talk just a little bit about uh tolkien himself Born in South a South Africa, of course, linguist, of course, the World War One situation, lost all of his friends. Um, I'm just kind of hitting some quick points on this because Tolkien's life and story is very well versed. There are people who have done full, detailed essays and theses and analyses on Tolkien and his life. I'm not really going to go into that right now, but from my perspective particular analy analytic perspective, there's two big things I wanted to talk about with regards to Tolkien himself. 
Number one, watching the path of his life, a story like this felt inevitable. It, it felt like the kind of thing that would emerge from a creative mind like his, based on the circumstances he went through. The overall presentation of... I'm trying to think of how best to put this. The overall presentation of the path forward being difficult and harsh and brutal, and then concluding, but not concluding in a happily ever after kind of way, just kind of concluding and having succeeded, the victory therefore being the removal of further bad rather than the inclusion of good. And there's a lot of... Uh, elements of that in the books specifically which are actually absent from the movies the movies tend to end on a much more hopeful and positive note not the least of which being the most obvious scouring of the shower which reminds me actually uh, of the second thing i wanted to bring up tolkien mentioned how he was very against allegory in his works and there's some obvious and logical reasons for that i actually tend to have the same perspective unless i am specifically intending an allegory i dislike it when someone's like oh obviously he's talking about this thing when i'm not that being said, he specifically called out the scouring of the Shire as non-allegorical, even though he also is freely admitted that it had to do with his experiences in the post-World War I climate, about how after the great victory they went home and things were crap. And that alleg... I mean, I'm, maybe it was an unintentional thing, or maybe it was just his view on life in general, maybe he just wanted to use the experience in order to push it forward, I don't know. I just bring it up because it is, in my opinion, the one true allegory that exists within the original books. I told you we'd bring up the books a couple of times, so this is one of them. Lord of the Rings was intended as just a story amongst the mythos that was going to be, you know, England's mythos, which is... uh Part of why this these books were considered unfilmable for a very long period of time. I know, I know, there were actually a couple of uh, animated films uh, prior to this, and the rights were owned by, I can't remember his name, to do those works. And that brings me to Peter Jackson. Looking back, Peter Jackson was the perfect fit for this. But at the time, it was the weirdest thing. I'm just going to say this as bluntly as I can. You know how we got the Lord of the Rings movies? Luck. No, I'm sorry. That luck. Okay? A thousand different things lined up just so to allow the Lord of the Rings trilogy to happen. And it's actually mind-boggling when you really sit back and look at it. I'm not going to go into full depth into it, but let me just talk about Jackson for a moment. Let's look at his uh, movie career. So we had Bad Taste, which was a gross, pseudo-humor, uh, humorous sci-fi horror film. Meet the Feebles, which was a dark and cynical take on the Muppets. Dead Alive, also known as Brain Dead. I'm checking my notes for the names here, so I don't forget them. Uh, which was basically a Splatterfest film. Heavenly Creatures, which I don't even know what to say about that one. And The Frighteners, which was also a kind of gross comedy horror. Not a bad film, actually. In that list, the only one of those films, and I've actually seen all of those, uh, that I actually liked is The Frighteners. And even that's just kind of a, you know, it's, it's better than not neutral kind of a situation for me. So you look at that list and it's like, how the hell did the guy behind those films make this? And Peter Jackson's one of those director-producer-writer combos. Um, I make that point specifically because a lot of times a director is just a director. They're the director, they let other people write, they let other people produce. Um, sometimes they tend to do some writing credit, sometimes not. But he was, obviously, while other people worked on the script and other people helped produce, he was someone who was actively involved in every step of the making of the films. 
And that's why the first reason why I say in hindsight, Peter Jackson was the perfect fit for this, because he was the kind of director who would personally involve himself in every step of the filmmaking. Uh, a couple of the behind-the-scenes things I actually did bother to watch for this were uh, just cameramen following him as they were filming a scene over here and then filming a separate scene over here and then editing a scene over here because they were doing all this stuff pretty much simultaneously. Uh, and just watching as Peter Jackson goes from spot to spot and, and puts his own touch in and tries to help and work through all the issues on the editing side, on the directing side, on the second unit directing side, all that stuff. And he's that kind of director who, who's like, we're gonna, we're gonna make this, we're gonna do this 50 takes, 100 takes, we're going to push this through until it is exactly what it needs to be. And I think that was necessary for a kind of film like this. Like I said, the Lord of the Rings books had a rather strong reputation for being unfilmable. And the movies go out of their way to try and crisscross uh, exposition and basically background exposition, which is actually something that Star Wars did, if you pay attention. Many aspects of, for example, A New Hope have things where they'll just mention things in the background. And unless you know what they're talking about, it's just a name or just a place or just a nonsense word. But what they're doing is they're just kind of acting as though those things are normal and therefore establishing them and the context of them for the viewers. It's a very passive form of exposition, which is actually quite hard to pull off properly. They do that a lot in Fellowship of the Ring. They do that a lot in the Lord of the Rings trilogy in general to try and push all the information necessary through this. And, of course, there's the massive tonal shifts, which I've actually already mentioned. But then there's the fact that Jackson needed to get his hands on the rights to do this, and then he needed to sell a cinema on making this. Again, in hindsight, it, he was the perfect fit. Let's look at the things that Jackson had a reputation for at the time. He was, <laughs> he was notorious for being over budget for having critical, critically successful films that weren't really, that were financially solvent, but not really financially successful. And this last part is really strange, but it is something he had a reputation for and is critical if you look at it from the perspective of someone making the Lord of the Rings movies. He was known for using special effects as a tool of, of, of the movie rather than a crutch of the movie. Remember, at the time that Peter Jackson was developing his career in, in the early, mid, late 90s, he, a lot of special effects studios and directors and producers were all leaning on special effects to the point where, in some cases, quite a few movies came out that were special effects the movie without any real substance to the characters or the theme or the plot or anything else like that. Jackson, nevertheless, had a reputation, especially amongst New Line, of being a guy who could use those special effects as highlights for the main piece. It's one of the reasons why he was so critically successful at the time, because critics and the studios rather liked his stuff. And that leads us to him somehow miraculously getting the work and him somehow miraculously convincing the studio to give him the money up front to film all three at the same time to push through the way he wanted it to do it. Now here's here's where we hit a little snag. All of this information I've just dumped on you all be, all came from a question I had. How the hell did he pull this off? I don't mean the movies as a whole. I mean starting. How did Jackson get the rights, and how did he convince the studio executives to get him the money to do it the way he wanted to do it? Because that's what it was about. He he was like this was something Jackson wanted to do. This was a project that he had been building up for in his mind, and that he had been, and he, this was something he endeavored towards. This is something he 
it was an ambition of his to, to make a film adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. And he wanted to do it in this way, and he felt this was the way to do it, and he somehow sold the executive on it. And in all my research, I've never actually found out the specific reason of how he sold them on that. I don't know. It's a freaking miracle. The fact that he got the rights in general was kind of a miracle, because the guy was kind of squatting on them until that. So here we go. We have these movies. Yay. I'm just going to run through the rest of my uh, making of notes really quick-like. Howard Shore. Excuse me, I'm saying the wrong. Howard Shore. Brilliant music. Brilliant music. He knew how to pull a great deal of emotion out of this out of the out of the music that he presented and he knew how to vary his music a little bit he doesn't have the reach or the range of say John Williams or anything like that but he knew how to hit specific points and to really pull uh, a great deal of emotion out of those uh, they got John Howe and Alan Lee to go on to help design the, the uh, some of the sketches and the visual design of the film, which was hugely important. For those of you who do not actually recognize those names, those are two people who have been involved in being illustrators for Tolkien works for years, long before the movies came out. And therefore were the people who were basically the experts on what Lord of the Rings should look like and helped to produce things like uh, Karos Galadhorn, just to name one example right off the top of my head. And, uh... You know, the they did some, and this is probably one of the most well-known things, so I'm only going to touch on this briefly. The number of tricks they, they pulled to make the difference between the humans and the hobbits were phenomenal. They did a lot of very inventive, very creative stuff with perspectives. Uh, they had some of, some, uh, I actually can't remember his name. He's actually a really good uh, uh, actor, and he does a lot of stuff when you need someone who's smaller. And he and his, his family were there, and they were performing the Hobbits in long shots, and they had these, like, masks on for the long shots. And they, they just did a lot of stuff. I, I can't even put it... Multiple sizes of props was one of the ones I loved most. Like, they had stuff that was props for the human size, and then they had the same prop basically redesigned in smaller size for the Hobbit stuff. Uh, or actually, I should say it was actually Hobbits and then humans. I'm saying that wrong. They had people in suits... Watch the movie again sometime. There's a, uh, I'll give you a specific example. When they first reach the inn of the Prancing Pony in Bree, and the hobbits are down there, and Butterbeer's up here, and he's looking down at them. Obviously, that's a perspective trick, but then you see a human just kind of say, excuse me, and walk through the hobbits as the scene's going on. That's a guy on stilts in basically a large human, a giant human suit. And, and it's, and it's actually really funny watching them, you know, normally because there was no masks thing. It was just the human suit. And then you see a normal sized head popping out of this giant suit so that it would look like humans were stomping around amongst the little hobbits. It's, they did a lot of stuff to really pull it off. And they did some really good work on it. My only regret is having seen all of that. Nowadays I can kind of see the cracks, if you will. It's kind of obvious when Gandalf is actually looking over here. And Bilbo's actually over there, and they're trying to make it look like they're, he's looking like this because of the perspective thing. I almost wish I hadn't seen it. But I do give them tremendous props for the creativity of, of pulling that off. They also, as I mentioned here, they did lots and lots and lots of takes of certain scenes. Any scene that uh, Jackson felt really needed to have a significant impact, he was not afraid to do 10, 20, 70 takes in order to get the exact right per uh, performance out of it. 
And of course, as I hinted at earlier, they were usually filming multiple, usually, they were basically always filming multiple scenes at a time. And so an actor could literally go from a scene at this point of the film to a scene at this point of the film to a scene at this point of the film to a scene at this point of the third film, you know. Uh, and they actually had continuity experts on, on site who would run around being like, okay, at the point in time in the scene you're about to have, you should have this prop because you got it after this point and just keeping notes to keep track to make sure everyone was in the right outfit because they were doing so many things out of order. Uh, I also want to give huge props to the casting decisions. I, I don't know who their casting director was off the top of my head. I could look it up, but whoever it is deserves a damn medal. Because the actors have tremendous chemistry amongst each other. While I'm not a huge fan of most of the individual actors involved in this film, I mean, I'm a huge fan of John Rice Davies and uh, Ian McKellen and, and uh, Christopher Lee, the rest are just kind of, eh, you know, take them or leave them. But the, the really important thing is all of them gel well together. All of them actually have, it's something I've talked about so much in my Voyager stuff, they have amazing chemistry. There's just an automatic spark of dynamic between the actors that helps to make this fellowship work and helps to keep the flow of the characters and helps us to be invested in the characters because they appear to be invested in each other. It's very well done. And I also want to say it's, it's funny because they got, of course, Christopher Lee and Ian McKellen who are huge Lord of the Rings fans. There's this wonderful uh, thing where uh, a a woman, I, I forget her title, but she's someone who's basic, he's doing, uh, Christopher Lee's doing voice over stuff. They had to separate the audio and the visual for a lot of scenes in this film for budget reasons. I'm not going to go into the specifics. And so a lot of times the actors would then come in and, and basically dub over their own lines. So he's there. And he's do the amazing making his 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 lines, and the woman's explaining to him the the significance of the ring, and he's basically he turns around and he just starts say, saying it to saying this 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 thing to her by memory because of how much of a fan he is of the thing as as kind of a yes I know I get the significance of the poem I understand <laughs> you don't have to tell me this it struck me as very funny. The uh, They did something else. Uh, they did a lot of blocking with regards to models to figure out exactly where they were going to do what. They did amazing on-site set design. Uh, the logistics involved lots and lots of miniature use. Uh, that actually brings me to uh, something else I want to talk about here really quick. And that's the second unit group. Now, I've actually mentioned the second unit before. And I'm going to bring Star Wars and George Lucas into this again. Because I usually say that George Lucas is an excellent second unit director. And I mean that. He does that kind of stuff. Well, there are certain things that George Lucas is a good director for. Second unit, I want to fully discuss this because I've never actually sat down and discussed what a second unit really is. A second unit has its own director and its own crew of people and basically doesn't interact with the big budget individuals. The main director and his big salary and the main actors and their big salaries are basically never going to be on camera when the second unit is doing their thing. That means the second unit can use a lot of the same props, a lot of the same setting, you know, the, the, uh, not setting, uh, sets, a lot of the same sets, a lot of the same equipment at effectively a lot cheaper cost because every time, you know, a big name actor is out there, they're getting paid. So they're doing distance shots, establishing shots, battle scenes, um, really detailed uh, shots, you know, that kind of a thing. Any, a lot of the intro where they're fighting uh, in Mordor was a second unit stuff. 
uh, anytime you see a shot where it's like there's just a panning shot of an area and you see some people in the distance, that's probably a second unit shot. That kind of a thing. It's most, it mostly exists as a financial decision. That's part of the thing I wanted to bring up here with regards to these films in particular. Usually the second unit is operating a lot cheaper than everyone else. I mentioned they have the same equipment, but what I really mean to say is they have access to the same equipment, just less of it. They have less lights. They have less cameras. They have less, they have smaller sets. They have less sets. They have less props. So they have to make do with what they have. Basically trying to do these things for on the cheap. Because that's the point of a second unit director, uh, unit is to do things on the cheap. And the second unit director's job is actually very difficult because that person's job is to maintain the feel and the look of the film that the director's making while not being able to actually put any of their own footprint on it. The thing they did differently with The Lord of the Rings, I mean, other films have done this, but this was really important here, is the second unit had full support. Full access to everything the main unit had. Full access to all the equipment. Full access to all the sets. Full access to all the money. All the lights. This also went off into the uh, miniatures group. Because that's the third... Uh, usual function of the actual filming. You've got first unit, second unit, miniatures, and these usually are separate. All three of these had full access to equipment and full funding and full budget to be able to make every single scene just as high value as the main scenes that had the main characters in them. And in my opinion, that was hugely important for reasons I've already told you. Remember I mentioned earlier the panning shot and the t details versus the tile mentality? The fact that they put so much into the second unit and into the miniatures divisions of this film is one of the biggest reasons why those establishing shots, those beautiful panoramic shots, those awesome battle scenes are so awesome and so detailed because they had that backing to do it properly. And I think that was a phenomenally brilliant decision and also a very costly and a very, a very difficult decision to make. In hindsight, you look at that like, well, duh, of course you should spend all that money there. But in the moment, it's not actually that easy or obvious of a choice, because that's a lot of freaking money being burnt on basically just an establishing shot. Like I mentioned in the video game example earlier, it is easy to understand from the perspective of someone who has budget and time concerns why you don't want your animators to be working on all the details of one shot. But when you're making a work of art, and I'm just going to say it like that, when you're not making something to make money, but when you're making a work of art, those details matter. And that's again why I say Peter Jackson was the correct person and his crew was the correct crew for this film, for these films. Because they were interested in putting their stamp on history. And surprisingly, surprisingly enough, they did! There is absolutely no denying that cinematography was pushed forward in many different ways as a result of this trilogy. And the sheer amount of popularity that these films enjoyed is in no small doubt in no small part due to the amount of effort that went into every single shot of these films. That's ignoring stuff like mo uh, motion capture. The mocap industry existed before these, but after Two Towers and after the whole Gollum thing, the mocap industry exploded. They had people whose jobs it were to hang out at the nearby airport and to just watch for airplanes coming so they could call in and say, hey, a plane's coming so that they would know in advance when they have to cut off shots, just to make absolutely sure that there was no, no interruption whatsoever. Just think about that for a moment. And this ignoring the sound design. I want you to do me a favor sometime. I know this sounds weird. Pick a, a 
a part of the film. It doesn't actually matter where. Just a part that you really like. And then listen to it. Don't watch it. You know, either have it covered or have a game up or just close your eyes and listen to the scene if you're if you're watching it on your TV or whatever. And truly so- soak in the amount of sound design that went into these films. They also used a lot of traditional effects. Um, I, I mentioned this with the relation to sound design because a lot of that stuff can be digitally reproduced even at the era this was coming out. But the sound designers involved were like, no, we, we can do this with real sound. So when you're hearing things in that film, what you're hearing is a sound that was actually produced as opposed to a digitally reproduced sound, which, in my opinion, especially in, in this era, in the era when these films came out, is a noticeable difference. And then on top of that, of course, like I said, a lot of practical effects mixed with special effects. Probably my favorite example of this. I'm, this is the last thing I'm going to say about the behind the scenes, I swear. And then we're going to go ahead and move on to the movie proper. I have no idea how long I've been talking for. Throat hurts. Um, <laughs> is there's one scene where the Krebane are coming back from uh, the... I can't remember the name of the mountain. They're going over the mountains. <laughs> They're going over Moria. And the Krebane are coming back to Sodomon, right? And they come around Isengard, and then they go down into the pits for a bit, and the camera follows them, and then it goes up, and then it cuts to Saruman. That's actually three separate locations that have been spliced together. They had a miniature shot, you know, small scale, which the camera goes into, and then goes basically into a green screen. And then it cuts to a larger scale miniature area. And when I say larger scale, I'm talking bigger than my room here, where the camera then moves through this cave, and then it cuts to an actual set where Christopher Lee is standing against a green screen. And they blend all three of these together. I want to stress that regardless of the green screen stuff and a few touch-ups, this is almost entirely done with practical effects, with people actually running around literally hand-painting the cave walls and and the things that that, that, that are built there, the bridges and, and the picks and whatnot and the, and the molten. Now, most of the things that are animated in that section are CGI, but that's my point. Using CGI to emphasize practical effects has always been my preference, and this film demonstrates why. Furthermore, they just I just want to share this because this was cool. They actually had a detector, a little uh, smoke, not smoke detector, but it is effectively a smoke detector. I don't mean one to go off like, I mean registering the exact level of fog within an area and making sure that it stayed exactly even. Why? Well, because what they're doing is they're having the camera do a pass-through, and it's a programmed pass, so it's always going to hit, as long as nothing goes wrong, the same point at the same frame. All right, So the camera does a pass with the fog, and it's always at the static level. Then they get rid of all the fog, and then they do a pass without the fog. Why do that? Because they need to build density. The human eye is, understands the fact that the further away something is, the more indistinct it is, because there's more stuff, literally, in the air between us and it, right? So what they would do is they would have the foggy pass, and as the camera moves, elements of the non-foggy pass would be blurred in as they get closer. So you, the fog basically goes away as you're moving through it, creating the illusion of the fact that you're moving through a place that's, that's hundreds of feet wide, when in fact you're moving through a place that's dozens of feet wide. It's a brilliant thing. I love it. If you're at all interested, like I said, uh, some of this is on the actual... Uh, Blu-ray here, extended edition Blu-ray. Some of it is available just online. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff if you want to look into it. <sighs> Fellowship of the Ring. 
I want to remind you again, we're going to be discussing... Actually, hang on. I'm going to take a quick timestamp. Uh, or actually, I'm going to make a note to make a quick timestamp. That's what I'll do. Timestamp. And I'm going to put a timestamp just for viewers. There. I made a note about it. Big note. I love the visuals of this film. I know I've kind of already said that, but what I mean is the initial battle is fantastic. Uh, the second unit work there is amazing. All the different elves fighting all the different orcs, fighting all the different humans, and the battle is just wow. I don't know what else to say about it. I do want to say this, though. One of the things that Lord of the Rings, again, I want to stress this again, we're talking about the movies. The books are gone. As of this moment, okay? One of the things that's interesting about the Lord of the Rings is that it's very low tier. What I mean by that is, uh, you know, usually certain settings tend to be higher or lower tier in terms of the, shall we say, relative power level of a setting. A setting where everyone is a mage who can destroy buildings is, is fairly high tier, right? A setting where there's like one mage in an entire country and he barely has any magic at all is very low tier. Lord of the Rings is actually quite low tier in the movies. And, but, and I'll be pointing out certain examples of this as we go through it. But I like that because it helps to emphasize it is done correctly. Because in this case, any form of magic or magical effect at all, even if something that would be completely weak or pathetic compared to other settings, is therefore much stronger here due to the absence of any kind of, of comparative power level. So I bring this up because Sauron is so damn strong, and yet if you think about it, if you put him up against like so many other different settings, he would be a complete weakling. But his ability to go out on the front lines and just just smash away huge swaths of troops, and by huge swaths I mean like half a dozen with each swing, is considered significant because of the tear. Now, Sauron's Achilles heel in the movies is and always will be his arrogance, his... The, the crafting of the ring itself was, of course, his greatest, you know, his, his greatest weakness, his Achilles heel. It's ironic in its own right because the ring itself empowers him, magnifies the abilities of who is using it, in this case, him, and, and responds to his call. But it, it serves as a simultaneous, it, it's a weird blend of being something that weakens him and strengthens him at the same time. Because through it, he's empowered, of course, and has power over the other wings. And through it, he has the ability to endure. As his body is destroyed, the ring endures, and therefore he has the ability to keep going. However, it is also his great weakness. This is one of the reasons... I bring this up because it's very relevant. Um, it is often considered rather pathetic that Isildur is able to defeat the great and mighty Sauron with basically just a lucky sword swing, with a broken sword, no less. But in hindsight, with analysis mode turned on and ignoring the books, it actually all makes a degree of sense. Because Sauron had basically won as of that moment, and he was in full, ha ha, I can do whatever mode. And when you're being that cocky, you tend to overextend yourself quite a bit. So rather than just, and moving on with it, Sauron was relishing the victory and reaching out with the gloved fist. I, I actually picture, this is in part inspired, I admit, by uh, Shadows of Mordor, I picture him literally just reaching down and grabbing him by his by his his head and just pulling him up and just beating him against a rock because Sauron is is brutal like that. But as he's reaching down that desperate swipe separates him from the ring and therefore separates him from his life source, the thing that actually is both his strength and his weakness simultaneously. So it makes a degree of sense especially since it was basically a lucky break, which 
I mean, let's be 100% blunt, a lot of battles, especially in real life, are won or lost based on lucky breaks. The Ring's true strength is something that's interesting to talk about. In the movies, it's made very clear that the Ring basically has three powers. The first and most obvious is the ability to make you invisible, regardless of if you're a hobbit or not. The second and also very obvious is the fact that it extends your lifespan. It did this with both Bilbo and Gollum, and was actually in the process of doing this with Frodo. There's a reason Frodo was able to endure basically about a year with almost no sleep and almost no food, because it was sustaining him, if you could call that sustaining. I, I like to think of it more as a particular form of poison. But the true power of the ring is something that I've always found interesting, and it's probably one of the things that really made the film stand out for me, because the true power of the ring is the fact that it doesn't actually have any power. It's said many times, even just in this film, the ring, there is only one Lord of the Rings, only one who can bend it to its power, right? And he does not share that power, right? It has only one master, it, it serves no other, right? And yet people constantly talk about wanting to use the weapon of the enemy. Constantly, they're like, I will use the ring. And not to segue into the books too much, but in the books, Saruman wanted the ring to use it against Sauron. Everyone wants to use this damn thing, but they can't. Either because they don't fully realize they can't, or because of the very nature of that power itself, which is the fact that it has the call. The siren's call is what I like to think of it as, where just the idea of wielding the great power of the ring is just intoxicating in general, but then being in close proximity to it, it more or less literally poisons you seeps into your brain and makes you think about it. And notice that, especially in the movies, that is very clearly a matter of proximity. The closer and the more exposed you are to the ring, the more you are likely to think, I could use this great thing, I could be the great person. And yet it is, it is repeatedly presented that they actually can't. That all the ring would do would be to, to function to bring them back to Sauron, and then Sauron to take the ring and then actually freaking use it. There's some flashbacks where Bilbo finds the ring, which, of course, does not actually match the Hobbit scenes. Bit of a shame. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I have a quick side note here. I have so many side notes. <laughs> uh, to give you an idea of what I mean by that poisoned mind thing, the movie does a great job, and so does the actor playing Bilbo, of demonstrating the level of fixation that the ring imbues upon people around it. There's a great scene right at the beginning where Bilbo freaks out. And the music is building and building in tempo in the background. He's just searching everywhere, up and down. It, it, oh, oh, oh it's, it's in my pocket. I want you to picture this for a moment. Just not knowing where this thing was, just not knowing where it was, bothered him so much that he was in a panicked state, actually probably having an anxiety attack, because he wasn't sure where it was. Nothing else, not that it was stolen, just because he wasn't sure where it was. That speaks volumes to the level of fixation that this thing imbues on people. It's kind of messed up when you think about it. So, this film is the slow boil incarnate. Uh, I've actually heard that as one of the bigger complaints about it, but it's also one of the reasons why I prefer the extended edition. Oh, I guess I didn't even mention that. We're going over the extended edition, also known as the only edition of these films. Because there is only one edition of these films, and it's the extended one. Uh, but uh, some people complain how it takes friggin' forever. It takes the entire first disc for the Fellowship to be formed. 
But I like that because it's all establishment. There's no padding in Fellowship of the Ring. It's all some aspect of character development or character, uh, not excuse me, characterization or character development or setting building or advancing the plot or pushing the themes. Every scene serves some purpose and is pushing forward something. Even the more lighthearted scenes are woven directly in the narrative and therefore have some relevance to what's happening. As much as I do like the original Hob the, the, the Hobbit trilogy, I do have to admit that's one of the flaws of the Hobbit trilogy. There are several padding scenes in those, whereas I could not point to even a single scene of padding in this film, specifically. We'll see if there's any in Two Towers or Return of the King. I love the ideal of the Hobbits. I've talked about this before. There are two places in fiction, three actually, but the third one doesn't count, where if I had the choice to retire somewhere, you know, I've done it all, I've conquered the universe and emperor of everything, where would I retire? One of the places is the Shire. The idea of living in a place where people just farm their own food and, and cook, and then everyone's a cook, and there's great food, and there's great fun, and there's, like, farmland and green hills as far as the eye can see, and everyone knows each other and just hangs out and celebrates life. There's actually a quote that I like to pull out of this many, many times. It's, uh, it is no bad thing to celebrate a simple life. And I like that because it also for informs one of the major themes of the work. Because simple, I usually use the word simple as a negative. And that's because when it comes to writing, it usually is. For example, a simple reason for someone to be a bad guy is because he's evil. And that's bad from a writing perspective. There's no depth there. Whereas a more complex reason for someone to be evil would be, you know, insert many, many reasons and layers and build up and etc., right? Therefore, the latter, the complexity, is, is clearly and definitively superior to the former, the simple. But I'm going to be using the word simple several times throughout this, and I don't mean it in the sense of the bad sense. I mean it in the simple sense of the word. There's nothing really wrong with being simple when it comes down to it from a certain perspective, when it comes to being a person as opposed to from a writing perspective. Anyways, there's several pre-existing friendships that are demonstrated right off bat. Gandalf, of course, has a huge obvious fondness for the Shire. I imagine for the same general reason that I do. When you've dealt with as many world-changing events and, and great fights and orcs and dragons and all that stuff, it's got to be just relaxing to go to the Shire and have to worry about... The biggest thing you're worried about... Is, is what am I going to eat tomorrow? And what am I going to wear for the big dance that's happening at the inn tonight? You know? <laughs> There's got to be something incredibly relaxing about that. By the way, I'm going to be looking down a lot because I've got a lot of notes to check here. I don't want to miss anything. Early on, Bilbo is demonstrated to not be like other hobbits, which I like. It helps to establish him as a more human character, more like us, because the hobbits aren't actually like us, really. And I like that because it also helps to contrast versus Frodo. See, Frodo, for all of his, his actions in this film, and, and all three films really, ultimately is not really that much of a heroic character, and he's also not, not, not that much of a viewpoint character. He is a fairly normal character, but he is a fairly normal hobbit. Whereas Bilbo comes across as a much more normal, relatable character that a, you know, one of us could relate, re relate to. Someone who wants the kind of things of adventure and excitement and doing stuff and the kind of person that we really think we would be like. The kind of person we would want to be like if we were in extraordinary circumstances. 
It also helps to emphasize, the, like I said, the difference between Bilbo and all the other hobbits. Through Frodo, and a little bit through Sam, Merry, and Pippin, we see the difference between, you know, we, we, we get an understanding, a viewpoint of how hobbits work, their culture, their society, and thus Bilbo stands out from that. It is especially noteworthy that in so many of the scenes, the, the hobbits are all, ah, and they're always together. You pay attention to this. There's, there's always a group, there's always at least a few of them, and there's some in the background, or they're talking, or they're playing the little chess games, or whatever. There's always groups, except Bilbo is almost universally alone, except when he's with another main character, or at the actual party of his birthday. These are the two exceptions. And I think that helps to distinguish him as well, uh, in his mindset from everyone else. We got the low fantasy thing again. Fireworks. <laughs> Mere access to firework technology. Um, there's a very brief insight into Hobbit politics, which, true to form, is very small scale, in the form of Lobelia. Lobelia from the Sackville Bagginses. Again, I'm not going to go too much into the books. Uh, there's something else I'll be referencing later on, by the way, and I'm just going to tell you about it now. It's called Lord of the Rings Online. It's an MMO. Uh, it's a good MMO. It's based on the books, but it ties in many ways into the movies, so I'm going to be referencing it a few times. And I reference it here because Lobelia is... Demonstrably the politician of the Shire. And if you just compare her to like a real life politician or a politician from like Final Fantasy XII or something like that, the contrast is stri striking because her biggest ambition is to have his house. That's it. And she's not really like doing anything underhanded to get it, she's just pestering him. And that's about as far as sh uh, Hobbit politics goes. Again, very small scale, appropriately enough. And then there's the party! Yeah! Party! Great I, great stuff. I don't have much to add. It's a lot of detail. Again, soak it in. It's great. Early on, we established Merry and Pippin, uh, and there's two things that are well established about them. One is that they are troublemakers, and the other is that they're a team. Now, that's kind of relevant. Actually, that's extremely relevant, but I want to keep it, you, to keep it in the back of your mind because the very first scene we're introduced to them, those two facts are well established. Troublemakers and a team. It's always Merry and Pippin. It's not just Merry and it's not just Pippin. It's the two of them. And this is true for every scene in this entire film. Merry and Pippin are always together to some extent or another. And the two always do things together. For example, just to name one example off the top of my head, when one of them's like, oh, quick, let's do this, the other one immediately jumps in. Or when one person's like, quick, throw rocks at the orcs, the other one immediately jumps in. They always function as a team. That'll be relevant later, so keep it in your mind. So now we talk about the ring. So, of course, you know, Bilbo puts on the ring. Ooh. I want you to note Gandalf's reaction, because I want to explain something. A lot of people have made light of the fact that Gandalf was, was an idiot and didn't actually recognize the, the one ring when it was there. But in hindsight, I shouldn't even say in hindsight, with analysis mode on, in the confines of the movies, it makes perfect sense. Because it would be kind of like... Let me use a weird example. I know I'm borrowing this from Eddie Izzard, so forgive me. But I imagine you're just you're vacuuming right now, okay? And you hear this... And you're like, huh? What's that? And you go and check it, and you don't really expect it to be anything, right? Even though you heard the treasure, and you know there's something there, and you check it, and it's the, it's the treasure of the Sierra Madrid. <laughs> but imagine if it actually is. 
But you're not going to think that. Even if it actually is some gold piece or something, that's not going to be your first thought when you see it, is it? Because it's so out of the ordinary and so unusual to find that there that you're thinking, oh, that's not that. And your mind will automatically start thinking, well, it's got to be something else, right? I mean, because it can't be that. And so Gandalf sees this as a magical ring and basically nothing else. Now, it is worth noting that thanks to ring lore, I know, I know, and uh, the way that the setting works, again, any magic is significant. Low tier, right? So any magic ring, regardless of status as the one ring or not, is a big deal. And it's one of the reasons why Gandalf got on him about that. And, of course, put two, to, two, two and two together with regards to Gollum and his ring and the whole extending of his life thing. There are several scenes in this movie where Gandalf shows a bit of, uh, shall we say, insight into past and into future. And he'll do this consistently throughout all three films. Well, all six films, actually. And I only bring that up because I've always... The way it's been presented, the way I think of it is it's not that he is always known. It's that as events unfold, he gets, like, glimpses of things that connect to what's happening. I don't think it occurred to him that that was Gollum's ring who had called it precious until he heard him say, my precious. And that's the moment when it basically, the light bulb goes off and he says, it's been called that before, but not by you. Yes, I know, Gandalf's a Maiar and all that. Let's not get into that. That's not even discussed in the film, so we're, not, we're leaving that out of the film discussion. So... I mentioned here, you know, any any ring is is significant. I love the shock value of of Gandalf having to drill ball bargains to get his attention. There's two really great things they do with these coming scenes. First of all, the way it is so severely poisoning his mind is really driven home. On the off chance that you've never heard of Lord of the Rings or this is the first time you're exposed to the series or whatever, even for someone who knows nothing, it becomes very apparent what this ring is doing to Bilbo. Because we have had many scenes where Bilbo is this crotchety... Oh, okay. Bilbo is established as this crotchety loner. Except when Gandalf shows up. He runs out and hugs Gandalf. This is his good friend, and he, he's so excited. His mood instantly uplifts, and he's running around trying to get food for his friend, and it's fantastic. Oh, I can't believe my friend's here. And then we cut to this scene, not that many scenes later, and he's actually ready for fisticuffs against this guy. That really helps establish just how much this is poisoning his mind. And then he drops it. They do a great thing with this, by the way. They actually had a model of the ring that's like this big to get across this effect. So the ring drops and it doesn't bounce. That's a brilliant visual touch there. Because instantly we now visually recognize the weight of what this ring is. We have a visual acknowledgement of just... Like a brick. And the moment Bilbo leaves, having done that... He, take, he, he, he just, his whole body posture changes. And he lets out this sigh and he says, I thought of an ending for my book. The, the actor does a great job of it. You can see the weight just lifting off of him. It's very well done. And then Gandalf barely touches the ring. It has actually been debated if he literally touches it or not, because the editing is not quite clear. Uh, I didn't do a frame for frame for this, sorry. But whether he touches it or not, just being in close proximity to the ring, and I mentioned the proximity thing earlier, really hits him hard. Completely knocks him for a loop. And I want to stress that point because simply being in proximity to that level of malevolence, his malice, his cruelty, his hatred, his will to dominate all life, completely throws Gandalf 
the normally unflappable Gandalf, who has been the wizened old man up until this point, is 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 ranting, rambling into a fire. But I always thought there was a second reason for that. I thought that was the best thing Gandalf could do to himself to prevent him from actually picking up the ring. And then, and this is really important, Gandalf, the great, wise, powerful wizard who can't even go near this ring without freaking out, Frodo walks in and just picks it up as if it's nothing. Brilliant little point there that's emphasized. Because, of course, it is nothing to Frodo. And that's something that's that's very thematically pressed throughout the course of the film, which I'll be getting more into later. <sighs> Note, by the way, that Gandalf absolutely refuses to touch the ring in the next several scenes. He goes out of his way to ensure that no part of him touches it, and that he doesn't even get as close any closer to it than he has to. He's just, okay, put it in the envelope, and we'll seal that envelope, and then keep it away from me. One of the things that I like is in the following scenes, which actually take 14 months in the books, uh, or is it 14 weeks? I actually can't remember. It's a while. Maybe it's 14 days. It's 14 something. It's a while. Anyways, the next few scenes kind of fast forward a little bit. And Gandalf finally comes back to the house again. Oh God, oh God, oh God. And tosses the ring in there. And he is, it's, it's something that's so true with Gandalf's character. And I need a drink. I'm sorry. Give me just a second. It's so true with Gandalf's character. In many cases, Gandalf is right about something and desperately doesn't want to be. Because being right means things are bad. This is probably the first time this happens, but that's a recurring theme throughout the course of the work. Gandalf is like, oh god, please don't let it be the One Ring. Please don't let it be the One Ring. Please don't let it be the One Ring. And then he gives a visual just, oh, thank god it's not the One Ring. And then Frodo says, wait. And then he just, he tenses all the way back up. And then Frodo starts, you know, sees the form of Elvish, the black speech. Ha ha, by the way. And Gandalf's mood just just, you can just see him slump as it's just, oh, crap. If this was a more comedic thing, I imagine one of the more common phrases Gandalf would say would be, God, I hate being right. So Gandalf is completely overwhelmed at this point, doesn't know what to do. This is, again, there's going to be an undercurring theme of this for quite a bit, and I don't know how to phrase it other than the difference between knowing and not knowing. Many of the individual, this is very important, uh, with, especially when it comes to, uh, I'm sorry, my mother just texted me. <laughs> when it comes to the next few scenes that happen uh, with regards to Saruman, because, how do I put this? Gandalf Gandalf doesn't know how to step up yet. Gandalf is on his own character journey. Actually, all the characters have their own arc through this through the movies. Uh, Aragorn's was actually invented for the movies because he didn't have one, really, in the books. Uh, but his character arc is him... He doesn't want to be the guy in charge. He doesn't want to be the big guy, the one who knows everything, the one who makes all the big, horrible decisions. He doesn't want to be that guy. He, he's, he finds out this truth, slumps under it, and is like, I'm, I'm gonna go to my boss. <laughs> I know, I know, Saruman's not literally his boss, but the point being, I'm, I'm 
kicking this one upstairs. I'm, I'm going to go after this one. Uh, and I, because I, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with this. Oh, God, I can't deal with this. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But I want to talk about Sam really quick. Samwise Gamgee, who is, by the way, probably my second favorite character in these movies overall. Uh, I'll talk about my favorite character later. Sam is, of course, the real hero of the trilogy. We all know this. This is not, this is not new. <laughs> Everyone knows that fact. He is the real hero because he is a completely O'Brien character. He is as down-to-earth simple as it gets. But simple does not mean stupid, and simple does not mean lacking in personality. It just means that he's simple. It means he's O'Brien. He's just kind of simple compared to the other characters. And yet, and I will point this out as we go, he persistently and consistently stands up to the call time and time again where others either don't or hesitate or can't. He's also interesting in his dynamic compared to the other hobbits. Bilbo, of course, is... Well, Bilbo, I already kind of gave his divergence. Frodo, for all of his you know, love of the Shire and whatnot, is actually very knowledgeable. It's one of the things that separates his character from the others. He has a great deal of knowledge and understanding of the world beyond the Shire, which uh, Samwise does not have. We're on a page two, guys. <laughs> um, and I'll talk more about Murray and Pippin later. So I have a note here. I just want to say really quick, I am so glad Tom Bombadil is not in this film. I'm sorry for those of you who like Tom Bombadil. But I hate Tom Bombadil, and I'm glad he's not in the film. Mary do. Um, moving on. <clears throat> so, I have a note here. Why are the elves leaving? Keep in mind, we're not talking about the books, just in the movies. They never actually sit down and explain the specific reason why the elves are leaving in the books, but they do give several thematic reasons for the elves to be leaving in the movies. Did I say books earlier? What, you know what I mean. In the movies, they never say the elves are leaving because blah, blah, blah. But it's it's there for us to interpret why they're leaving. Some people, I've actually heard some interpretation that they're literally basically going on to heaven. Like, they're done. They can't die, so they just pass on to heaven. Uh, my personal interpretation, I'd love to hear yours, of course, if you're still watching this at this point. My personal interpretation is that they are passing the torch that they've done everything that they feel that they can do here, and they're ready to let the other younger races do their own thing. We, we've, we've done our bid for king and country. We're going to bed. And they're basically going into retirement and moving on to either new things or to stop. Take your pick. Just my take on it. Um, so I'm going to kind of tr skip forward a little bit in my notes. It's hard to discuss specific points in a movie like this while still going in the order of the film, because so many things jump around here or there. So I'm actually going to be discussing four points, which cross the next two pages, and all of them are about Saruman. First of all, Christopher Lee. Also, Christopher Lee. Moment of silence. Even early on, uh, Saruman comes off as much more malicious much more harsh than Gandalf does, even before we have the reveal that he's a villain. Of course, anybody who's a fan of Christopher Lee says, well, of course he's a villain. He's played by Christopher Lee. Although I will point out, Christopher Lee has played non-villains before, and in fact will in the future in the Hobbit trilogy. But I digress. Obviously, this Saruman is significantly different than the Saruman in the books. They did a completely different take on them. And I like it better. 
I'm just going to say that. I already put this out. So one of the big themes that I've already talked about is that greater understanding and greater power lead to, shall we say, more risk when it comes to this setting. If you're this great, powerful armor or, or soldier, general, king, wizard, elf, you know, if you're this mega powerful person, you can do big, grand, sweeping things and great deeds. This is actually something that will be flat out said by Mary uh, later on in Return of the King, I think. But, you know, big, grand, sweeping things. But those people, while they are very important and crucial to the pushing forward of the force of good and just the development of the setting in general, there's certain things that they just can't withstand. Like someone else who's big, powerful, and strong. Like, oh, I don't know, Sauron. And that leads me to the thing that they do very well. And Christopher Lee, I think, nails this. Because Saruman in the movies is not a simple villain. He is someone who is stuck in a no-win scenario. He is the most knowledgeable and the most powerful. And he is the wise. He's Saruman the wise, for God's sakes. And he doesn't have a rainbow cloak on. And he's like, he sees the power of Mordor. He sees the power of Sauron, and he capitulates because he understands. It is his understanding, his genosko, his knowledge, his wisdom that enables him to recognize just how bad things are. Again, Gandalf never quite hit, quite hits that point. Gandalf always has that frankly foolish hope. He actually himself calls it a fool's hope later on, again, I think in Return of the King. Gandalf never hits that point, but Saruman has that kind of logical, deductive ability to look at the situation and says, this is hopeless. We can't beat Sauron. We can't. And he is struck with complete and utter despair. And it is in that despair that he capitulates and agrees to serve Sauron, as it is the only thing he can do to survive. And so Saruman's character throughout the movies is someone who is not who does not begin evil, and it's unfortunate. He should have had more scenes to show this. So Christopher Lee does a good job of what he has, but there should have been more development of this, my opinion. He doesn't start as evil. He starts as someone who's stuck up against a wall. And so we scroll down a bit here on my notes. Later on, he goes into contact with Sauron, and the next scene has Christopher Lee bundled up like he's just done something horrible and he's chilled. And when they ask, you know, what, what does the eye command? He says, we have work to do. The way he says that, there's so much bitterness in his tone. Like he doesn't want to do this. Like he resents the fact that he has to do this, but he feels he has no choice. Because again, he is smart enough to recognize how incapable he is of withstanding Sauron. And as the scenes go on, the more he does it, the more he capitulates, the more he interacts with the orcs, the more he, he, he destroys the land, the easier it gets for him. Saruman actually has a fairly decent, I'd say, like, like a half or maybe a third of the alphabet progression of villainy. Really quick, for those of you who don't know what I mean by that, um, a really well-done progression of villainy is not someone who's like, hi, I'm a good guy, A, and then oh, I'm an evil villain, Z, right? But instead goes, it, when you go from A to B, the difference in those acts is small, right? It's just this little difference. And then B to C and C to D, and you can see how it progresses. And as your perspective changes, you're only doing one thing slightly worse. It's not until you get to Z, way down here at the end, that you can really compare and contrast where you started over on A, the progression of villainy. 
descent, if you will, of villainy. Saruman goes through about eight or so steps of that, because, again, we don't see that much on the camera. But you do see him getting worse progressively each time. And the Urukai are a perfect example of why Saruman is so dangerous. If you're paying attention, the great villain of the first movie is actually not Sauron. In fact, we don't fight anything of Sauron's except for the ring wraiths in the first act. They are defeated as part of the first quest, which I'm actually going to talk about more later, because um, I'm kind of jumping around my notes a little bit here. Sauron is not the enemy here. It, we, we fight some random goblins. We fight the Balrog, Durin's Bane, but we don't actually... The, the main villain of the first movie, and ironically of a decent part of the second one too, is Saruman and the Urukai. And it showcases why that capitulation is so horrible. Because it can be debated that Sauron would have had a significantly harder time and the Fellowship a significantly easier time if they'd gotten Saruman on their side. But of course he couldn't bring himself to do that. If I can bring Star Wars into this one more time, the whole point of that final shot of getting the torpedoes into the Death Star vent was that it was a literal one-in-a-million shot. That it was the, it was an impossible shot that should have never happened. And it was the sheer mir miraculous and force that enabled it to happen, right? I mention that because, you know, we could look at that and say, oh, anybody would, would, would bet on the rebels, they'd just win against the Empire. But that's not true in character nor in the moment. In the moment, in the character, siding with the rebels was the really stupid thing to do that nobody should have done because it was doomed to fail. They had a literal one-in-a-million chance of success. That's the same situation for the heroes in these movies. They are doomed. Boromir later lays it out pretty clearly. <laughs> Just going into Mordor is a challenge. Once you're in, it gets worse. One does not simply meme into Mordor. I'm... Just getting it out of the way. <laughs> I know y'all love those memes. Um, you know, he lays it out, exactly what how perilous and terrible of a quest this is. So someone as intelligent and long-thinking and powerful as Saruman looks at it and says, That's not happening! <laughs> and that's why it's a fool's hope. Because only a fool would hope to a one-in-a-million chance. And Saruman is not the fool. He is the wise. And thus Saruman makes everything so much harder and so much worse for our heroes. It is a very classical style of literature, the way Saruman is presented here in these films. And I love it. I'm actually reminded of Saren over in Mass Effect 1, actually, as weirdly as that sounds. Because it's a similar situation. If Saren had actually joined with Shepard, oh, pfft, Sovereign better start running. But he was too smart to do something like that. And my last point here, really quick, Later on, Gandalf, of course, gives his wonderful speech. There's only one Lord of the Ring, and he does not share power. And then he is rescued by an eagle. Uh, by the way, I'm not going to bring up the eagles in these videos other than to mention them twice after this point. I'm going to mention the eagles three times ever, okay? Not getting into the eagles. Everyone in the universe has talked about the eagles, okay? So he's rescued, and then Saruman looks at him and he's just like and he says this wonderful line and so you have chosen death because that's exactly what Saruman has not chosen because from Saruman's perspective with the despair he feels and his knowledge of the situation there are only two choices capitulation or death and so he looks at it and says alright then you have chosen death 
And it's funny because for whatever reason, maybe fear, maybe pride, Saruman never chooses death. Not once, actually. This is true all the way through all three films. So rewinding quite a bit, now that I've talked about Saruman and his character, let's talk about uh, a great scene that happens much earlier when they are first caught by the Nazgul on the road. Okay, The ringwraiths are unleashed, the Nine are chasing after them, and we see immediate contrast between what troubles are like for hobbits and what troubles are like for the heroes. Because we go straight from running away from Farmer Maggot after stealing some crops and getting away Scott clean because you stumbled down a cliff to running away from ringwraiths who are trying to kill you because you happen to have something that their master likes. The, this, and the two scenes are literally right next to each other. So it's a direct contrast. It's brilliant. I love the way it does it. But I gotta say it... <laughs> I'm finally up to one of my first real complaints about this movie, or these movies. The Ringwraiths are flat incompetent in this film. I'm sorry, they are. I know they're weak to fire. I know they're weak to water. But they put in a poor showing many times. And this first instance is not helpful, where he's like, Okay, I feel the presence of the ring somewhere nearby. Sniff, 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 sniff. Sniff, 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 sniff. A noise! I mean, come on! I have never really been able to take them particularly seriously as a threat uh, in, in, in this film specifically. Later on, they get a little bit of a better showing. And in The Hobbits, uh, they actually get a pretty good showing, too. Go figure. Anyways, excuse me. Hang on, just a moment. Pardon me. I like how it's merry who picks up immediately on the danger and the fact that they're chasing uh, Frodo. Because Mary's the one who tends to pick up on things, and Pippin's the one who just kind of tends to blunder along and follow. Also the coward. Although he does overcome his cowardice a surprising number of times. When, when ever, every single time throughout this movie, I want you to pay attention, every time Mary or Frodo, or, or hell, any of them really, is in some kind of danger, Pippin does not hesitate even a second to do something about it the moment he's prompted. Like, sometimes he'll stare in shock, like... But then when he, when he overcomes the shock, he just picks up a rock and starts throwing it, you know? It's interesting because one of his character arcs, which hasn't even really begun yet, is him finding his courage. Sorry, I'm going to text my mom really quick. <laughs> the next thing I want to talk about is the weakness to water thing. Now, <laughs> the specifics of whether or not the Nazgul was able to actually capture them or not while they were on the little craft they were on is debatable. To me, I think it's a little ridiculous that this super doom, undying ring wraith can't deal with them now that they're a little bit out on the water. However, I point it out because it's actually, it, with analysis mode on, it's actually a bit of foreshadowing their weakness to water, which we'll get into more later. So here's the quest thing I mentioned. So the quest keeps expanding throughout the course of this work. The first quest is get to Bree. But once they get to Bree, they find out things aren't great. So, okay, we got to go from Bree to... Well, actually, no, the first quest was actually hide. The second quest was get to Bree. The third quest is get to Rivendell. 
The fourth quest is actually to get to Mordor, but that quest kind of changes and diverges a bit. We'll get to that more later. But I bring that up because uh, the like the nature and strength of the quest escalates gradually, and I think that was mandatory for in-character reasons. Imagine for a moment if you approach Frodo in the Shire, having done none of this stuff, and say, go to Mount Doom. Come on, let's go. He's not going to frickin' do that. He's going to be like, no, 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 no. I can't even begin to do that. No. Same thing with probably most of them, really. But instead they are introduced to a local threat, which then becomes a semi-local threat, which then becomes a we need to get to Bree to hand this off to someone more competent. Remember, they were going to Bree to, to interact with Gandalf. It's like, okay, we need to get this to Gandalf. Then it'll be safe. Uh, in fact, Frodo himself flat out has a line, take the, to the village of Bree, and Frodo says, the ring will be safe there? Like, almost hopefully, because it, that's as far as he has to go, just to Bree. And even going to Bree is an adventure for a normal hobbit. And remember, we have four normal hobbits with us. Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin. Bilbo was the adventurer, and even he, he didn't start off as one. So, the quest keeps escalating, because otherwise I don't think they would have ever even started. So then they get to Bree. Now... I know I, I'm going to bring up Lord of the Rings Online again here, and the books, because Bree is usually presented as one of the last bastions of good people. I mean, there's bandits and, and screw-ups there as well, but it's generally a nice place. In the movie, it's portrayed as this dark, horrible hovel of filth and death. Everything's rainy and muck and death. And all these dirty, deranged, scrabbly-looking people guzzling down booze, you know, that kind of a thing. However, going back through this with analysis mode on, I, I, I can't believe I never picked up on this before. It's being portrayed that way because our viewpoint characters are hobbits. To them, this is a big, dark, scary place. To the humans, it's probably just Tuesday. And, I, and, and in hindsight, that makes perfect sense. And I like that. I like that presentation of, oh my god, this big, dark, scary place, which just happens to be out of the norm for them. Where, where, where am I at my mouth? <laughs> I need to start keeping track. I have so many notes. Um, I also... Uh, it, it, this is also further emphasized by Aragorn, consequently. To the normal folks, he's dangerous. And so to the hobbits, he's absolutely terrifying. And then, of course, I cannot help but point out that they, they have no hesitance. Both Merry and Pippin and Sam all rush to confront Aragorn despite their terror. I think this is the second time now the Hobbits have shown their willingness to band together in, in desperate situations, which will be a recurring theme throughout all six movies. So then he puts on the ring. <laughs> and by puts on it, he accidentally slips and the ring just kind of lands on his finger. Okay, that's ridiculous. I'll admit it. But it's nice because it's our first real shot of Sauron after the armor, and how Sauron will be perceived throughout the entirety of the rest of, well, all six movies, really, but especially this trilogy. Uh, the Eye of Sauron, lidless, wreathed in flame. Um, would you believe that I was surprised to learn that that was just an interpretation of the original description? What I mean by that is, when I used to read the books, that's pretty much exactly how I pictured the Eye of Sauron. And then I watched the movies, and I was like, yep. And then I studied this a little bit later in my life, after seeing these movies, and was like, oh, that's not, huh, okay. There's actually several things like that. The Watcher and the Water, for example, or the Balrogs, are not really 
described in all that much detail. So most of it's just kind of been inferred and then kind of kept going. Anyways. So, again, the Nazgul are bleh. <laughs> I'm very disappointed by them. I want to bring something up from Lord of the Rings Online, though, that Lotro does very well. It has a mechanic called Dread, which probably wouldn't work in most other settings. Dread lowers your max HP and your max MP, effectively. Your max, I want to stress that. So if you have a thousand health, and you are at a significant amount of Dread, you actually have 500 health. You're not injured, you're still at full health. It's just your full health is now 500. It's a great way of emphasizing the nature of certain creatures in Middle-earth. The Nazgul usually have a Dread rating of frickin' 9, which... I think is actually the second highest in the entire game, at least up to uh, when, I was, well, when I was playing last. In other words, you, if you're around a Nazgul, you have trouble even moving because you're so terrified. The dread level is so high. I've always liked that impression of the Nazgul, that they aren't actually that great in a fight, that they're not actually that strong, but the sheer aura of wrongness that they put off literally debilitates everyone else around them. It helps to emphasize certain aspects of their character and is kind of shown in the movies in several scenes. There's this great bit where Butterbeer, the, the bartender, is, is just shrinking behind the, the thing, just shake, just, oh, God, please don't let them see me. And I love the idea that all of those people in that inn are, are terrified as these ring wraiths are moving through there just because they're there. Small little point, by the way, just a little character point. Notice that Samwise is, of course, asleep because he's O'Brien. <laughs> Uh, really, it's more, it would probably be more accurate to say that O'Brien is Samwise, but anyways. And then he wakes up. Oh, God, he jerks awake. And he's the first one to jerk awake. And then Merry and Pippin jerk awake. And then Frodo was never asleep at all. I only point that out because it's an interesting little slice of how their different mindsets work. Sam was the first one up, ready to do something. Merry and Pippin immediately follow. Frodo couldn't sleep at all. That's very in character for all four of them. Frodo also has a great line, and it helps to emphasize that knowledgeable nature of his that I mentioned. He has a weird sort of wisdom to him. He says, a servant of the enemy would look fairer and feel fouler. And I love that, especially given, you know, the, the, the fact that Sauron first actually, uh, the deceiver, you know, that whole thing. <laughs> but again, that's books. It makes sense to me that the enemy would try to appeal to you and seduce you through, through connivingness rather than... And, of course, Aragorn kind of has that grizzled, chiseled, women-flinging-themselves-at-him look going for him. And some men. Also, the metabolism on Hobbits has got to be crazy, I'm just saying. So there's, it's a little bit silly, the campfire scene they have at Amansul. But I like it because it helps hammer in a point, again, really. But at this point, it still needs to be hammered in. We're still in the establishment phase of this movie that the hobbits just do not understand what they're doing. They don't understand the scope, the gravity, or the threat. Remember, the last major threat they dealt with was Farmer Maggot and his crops. And then it kind of escalated to immortal ring race trying to murder them. It's kind of hard to do that up there. And so they start the fire, and they start cooking. And it, it's just such an innocent thing. Ah, yeah, yeah, you want some bacon? And then the ring race show up, and they're like, Oh, crap! Enemies! Right! That thing! So then the Ringwraiths approach, and are incompetent, and are, are are defeated by just Aragorn. Now, I know Aragorn had fire, 
I know they're weak to fire, but in the again, in the scope of the movies, it kind of makes me go. But I actually have a theory, purely in the scope of the movies, that helps to explain several aspects of the incompetent of the the incompetence of the ring race, most notably the Witch King of Agmar himself. He could have just walked up, stab, grabbed the ring, walked away. He didn't. He does this. He he's. They all slowly approach. They don't actually attack until Samwise, who is the first to attack, of course, attacks. And then like, psh, disarm fling, grab fling. And then the Witch King grabs one of the Morgul blades. Now, obviously, there's a level of cruelty involved here. Because, you know, this will basically turn him into a, uh, Frodo into a wraith like they are. A half-living, half-dead creature of horribleness. But the way he goes for the ring, it makes me think that they are... I put this as bluntly as I can. That they are not immune to the siren's call of the ring. That if these truly were creatures of no will, that existed solely to serve Sauron, and were were terminators, to you to use that terminology, who, whose only thought was get the ring, get the ring, then they would just walk up, stab, grab, and leave, and they would have succeeded at it, like three times already. But they don't do that. In addition to the cruelty they display. The Witch King flat out walks out and tries to just take the ring straight off of his finger. Like it's calling to him. You see why I have this theory? Because the presentation of him and the way he, the, 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 the guy in the suit does his body movements, it's clear that he was just as entranced by it as everyone else is, that he's not immune to its effects. And it wouldn't surprise me if he thought he could claim it for himself, just like every freaking else, everyone else does. And it's not until the ring is removed from his perception entirely that he actually starts serving his lord again. And that's all the way in the third movie. So, checking down my notes here. Aragorn defeats them. Yay. I kind of wonder where Saruman got all the metal to arm his Urukai. I've always wondered that. Everything else makes sense. Where do you get the metal from? Hmm. Another nice touch. Our first shot of, well, an elf, really, that isn't in a massive battle. Arwen. Of course, we have no Glorfindel. I've got three more pages. Uh, well, I have three more pages of notes, guys. Uh, Arwen basically takes the place of Glorfindel, which I'm okay with. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of the actress they got to play Arwen, but the difference is inconsequential to me, even though Glorfindel is a freaking badass. I like how they perceive how we see Frodo's perspective of her while he is half merged into the spirit realm. Uh, I want you to keep in mind that they do some good visual stuff with the spirit realm every time it shows up. It's obviously not quite the same. Later on, he actually the cam he's standing there, and then like he sees basically a camera pan up Barad-dûr, and then he sees the eye of Sauron like ten feet in front of him. Um, to give you an idea of how the spirit realm works. But every time he goes into the spirit realm, it's horrifying. It's it's shaking and dark and horrible. I want you to keep that in mind for when we get to the Hobbit movies, because it'll be relevant. But I also want to keep it in mind that he tends to see things kind of as they are. And when he sees Arwen, he sees someone who is basically angelic, glowing, literally glowing white. It's not until we shift away from Frodo's perspective that we see how she actually looks, which is far more normal and down-to-earth. She just happens to have the ears. And... I like that because it helps to emphasize the, the more, uh, for lack of a better term, spiritual nature 
uh, of the elves within the setting. So then they start running out, and it's probably the first time that I felt the wraiths were actually a threat, as they chase after her for what is about six or so days nonstop. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, the tension and, and stress of riding for six days, knowing that if you slip or if you fall or if you fall behind too much, you lose instantly because they're literally a few feet behind you. That finally got across the real threat of the ring race, probably for the first time for me. Uh, so then the weakness to water thing pays off, thanks to the earlier foreshadowing. I also want to talk about something. I've mentioned how this is a low-tier setting. I know what the books... Let's see. The way it's presented, it seems clear that she is basically activating a pre-prepared enchantment in order to help defend her realm. Basically calling upon the magic that's already been woven into the river itself, and she's just the activator. The spell was already cast, if you will. So... It, it, that actually makes a degree of sense, and of course is thus a much larger spell than most of the other ones we've seen to date, and has a rather dramatic impact on things that have already been established to have a weakness to water. And leads to a really cool quest chain in Lotro, actually, but I'm, I'll, I digress. I have, a here, I have a weird question here. Why does Arwen care about Frodo so much? I also have an, a ca casual thought here. Rivendell is gorgeous. I know I would retire in the Shire, but oh, I would love to visit Rivendell. It's just beautiful looking. Absolutely beautiful. So the visuals of Rivendell, the music of it, the framing of the scenes, the dialogue, every single aspect of the presentation of the Rivendell scene seems to indicate as if the journey is over. Quest complete! You know, and everything seems to indicate that equally. And we've just had our first big win, you know, with, with the river thing I just mentioned. Gandalf has escaped. The wraiths are repelled. And what's funny is, this persists for a couple of scenes until everything goes just a little bit darker, and then we have Elrond and Gandalf discussing just how bad things are, because it's actually worse than we already thought it was. Now, I have an odd question for you. Elrond mentions how men are weak. Now, again, within the confines of the movies, I think that is hypocrisy. Hear me out. Elrond is someone who, you know, took Isildur to Mount Doom, to the place where he could toss it in. Cast it in the fire! Destroy it! And Isildur says no, and casually walks away. Why does Elrond not stop him? I actually do have an answer for that. And I think it's the same answer as to why... Gandalf refused to touch the thing. Elrond, who was a large, knowledgeable, powerful individual, was probably terrified of handling the ring. So, he was so terrified of it, he was willing to let it go rather than try to risk falling into it himself. In other words, he was weak. And yet his big thing is about how the men are weak, and it is because of men that evil endures focusing away from his own culpability within the problem. And I think that's actually quite in character for how Elrond is portrayed in the movies. He's not exactly a, you know, a bad guy. In fact, he's quite a bit of a good guy. But he seems to be very, very, very prideful and very 
well, we're Elvin, so we're just better than you, and I'm Elvin, so I'm just better than you, kind of a portrayal. And it's not until his daughter basically hits him across the face with it that he starts to acknowledge that maybe, okay, fine, I'll, I'll actually do something about this. But that's, of course, third movie. <laughs> There's a persistent theme that starts to show up at about this point. Now that Boromir, my favorite character in the films, by the way, in the three films, uh, Boromir finally enters the picture. And he's not just my favorite character because he's Sean Bean. He is a very fleshed-out character. And honestly, I think that's pretty much unique to the movie. And at least in part because of Sean Bean's style of acting. Because he knows how to put nuance into the way he says something. At first, it seems like he's, you know, a bad guy. Because he's portrayed in this kind of bad guy light. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But even early on, you see that kind of despair in the way he's acting. You could see the desperation behind his eyes. And you could see the, well, the same thing that Saruman went through. Boromir is not stupid. And he's on the front lines. And we see more about this in a flashback in, I believe, the second film. But he knows exactly how bad things are. He knows exactly what it's like and exactly what they're up against. And it is that knowledge that is crushing him under its weight. He constantly talks to other characters about how we have to keep hold of hope. How we have to not let go of fear. We cannot surrender to despair. And in each time, he is really trying to convince himself because he is doing the opposite of that within himself. Uh, hang on. So... One of, the, one of the themes related to Boromir is brought up is the nature of men. Quick clarification point. If I say the word men, like in the next three or six movies for the next couple of weeks, what I mean is the race of men, humans, okay? They always call them men, capital M, and that's what I'm going to use, just like I'm calling them elves rather than pointy ears or knife ears or something like that, okay? I'm using their terminology. Moving on. Oh. The race of men is portrayed as weak, and this becomes very clear later on as well. And it took me a while to really get a handle on where they were going with this, which is funny considering how basic it really is. All of the races are portrayed as being fairly strong in their own right. An individual hobbit can do great things. An individual elf can do great things. An individual dwarf can do great things. And yet the race of men are scattered and weak and leaderless, and they can't do great things. Even the great powerful men tend to lose when they go out on their own. And this is hammered in at the end of this movie. I'll just skip ahead of my notes here. It's actually three pages ahead. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get to that one. I'll get to that. That's way ahead. So, it's funny because what the men need is each other. They need to be unified. When the men are together, they can accomplish things the other races can't. And when they have a strong leader, they can accomplish even more that the others can't. This is funny if you think about it, because there's one other race that has that same attribute, and it's the orcs. Oh, and also debated with the goblins. And yes, I know, the, the difference between orcs and goblins is kind of a movie thing. Let's just move on. So, some politics comes in during the Council of Elrond, and of course, it's, it's a nice showcasing, because even the good guys... Even Gandalf and Legolas and Aragorn are all up standing and shouting and gesturing and gesticulating. And I mentioned here more stuff about Boromir. He, he's the one who shows the folly of the quest that they posit. Again, Frodo, in ignorance, 
says, I will take it to Mordor. Boromir is the one who says, you can't do that, and starts to outline just how bad it is, because he's been there. He's been fighting on the front lines for basically his whole life. And he understands what they're up against. And again, it's that understanding of the threat that holds him back, just as it held Saruman back, and held Elrond back. I also like the fact that the black speech actually hurts Elrond, uh, just to listen to it. It's a nice touch. I also like Gandalf's reaction to Frodo. Once again, Gandalf was right, and wish he wasn't. He, he, he knew... He knew that Frodo was the right choice to take up this quest, and he hated it. And he didn't want that, and he wanted to try anything else instead of that. And I think, if I may pause for a moment, I think that's really the biggest difference between Gandalf now and Saruman now. Saruman would look at the situation and say, Frodo's the only choice. Go! And probably send him off, and probably send him to his death. Gandalf is like, no, I, I can't. I can't do that. I'll do anything but that. It doesn't matter if I'm right. It doesn't matter. I need to find some other way because he desperately wants to do things the right way. His sense of, of compassion basically overwhelming his, his intellect. And it's not until it's forced that he's like, okay, fine. But as an amusing side note, because he spends so much time trying to do anything else, now there's more to help the quest actually succeed. But also, of course, note the order of the Fellowship rising up. Frodo, first, of course, Gandalf, right after that, Aragorn. Legolas is the next one. That makes a degree of sense. We know that Legolas is close to Aragorn and close to Gandalf, and the elves pledging their support is kind of a duh. Gimli pledges support immediately after that. Now, I actually like Gimli, and I love John Rice davies but it's funny because the impression is given that Gimli, who, at this point, the only thing we know about him is that he dislikes elves, only joins to spite the elves. And then the last one to join, not counting the hobbits, is Boromir, the one who, more than any of them, understands just how doomed this quest is. Then the hobbits join. Samwise, and then Merry and Pippin, the usual order there. I'm, I'm never going to finish this rumination. <laughs> you guys are going to be like, yeah, I'll watch this over the next week. I love, so, I've mentioned how Boromir up till now has been kind of portrayed as if he's a bad guy. But what I mean by that is, it's easy if you're not thinking about it if to, to look at the situation and presume he is a bad guy. He's a villain. Uh, dark. Scary. And yet the very next scene is him just laughing and playing with the hobbits and teaching them how to fight. It's a very important scene because it helps to emphasize to the audience that this isn't a bad guy. He is actually one of the good guys. He's just a little more conflicted than everyone else. I like that. Uh, it also helps, he has a great line that helps show his perspective. It is a strange fate that we are to suffer so much fear and doubt for such a little thing. I mean, it's a great line. And it helps to showcase how, in his mind, things have become beyond despair at this point. Again, we see the low-tier fantasy nature of uh, magic the low tier nature of this magical fantasy setting where it takes Saruman standing on top of his tower you know chanting for god knows how many minutes as as he casts the storm up in order to be able to do basically one well well aimed lightning bolt and that's it that's all he accomplishes but again in a low magic setting in a low tier setting any magic is significant and that one well aimed lightning bolt happens to completely screw over the fellowship Arguably, they could have actually died right there, and probably should have. 
And so then Gandalf wants to avoid Moria. You're noticing a trend here in Gandalf being right and trying everything to avoid it. Because Gandalf is right in the fact that the only real path forward is through Moria, and he knows this. And he's afraid of it. And I like that. I like the simple, for lack of a better term, human weakness of him being afraid of dying. It's probably the exact same feeling that Saruman has, and the reason why Saruman has been doing so many of the things he has, because he's afraid of dying. He doesn't want to die. Gandalf doesn't want to die. And Gandalf doesn't actually think he can take on you know, Durin's bane by himself. It is sad to me that we don't get to see the Dwarven Kingdom at its height. It's really weird playing Lotro and the Mines of Moria expansion and then watching this film. Because in the expansion, Mines of Moria is, of course, this vast, huge, awesome area that has already been resettled by people following after the Fellowship. A whole group of dwarves goes there to reopen the place and to reclaim the, the kingdom. So you can see it kind of a little bit more as, as it should be. Of course, in the movie, we see dark caves and abandoned mine shafts and all that fun stuff, which doesn't quite get it across. I feel, of course, very sad for Balin's fate. I have a question for you, though. Do you think the dwarves at the door died there as one of the initial waves of the herd, of the goblin herd? Or do you think that they were like one of the last defenders, one of the last groups of people holding out against the goblin advance? There's food for thought. It's interesting to me, too, because I like the latter idea more. It's more dwarven to me. The idea that they could have opened the door and fled out, but that would have meant letting the goblins out. And the goblins don't have the ability to open that door. Hell, the heroes barely did. So they sealed the door shut, you know, activated the magic enchantment, and then had their last stand, ensuring that the rest of the world wouldn't have to deal with the goblins. That's very dwarven. Uh, there's also a line later on that kind of uh, adds to that, where, uh, I forget where it is, I think it's in the second movie, but Gimli mentions to Legolas, I wish I could, you know, have a whole army of dwarves at our disposal for this, and Legolas says, I fear that war already encroaches on their lands. Uh, it gives the impression that the dwarves are off fighting their own battles right now in order to try and help the greater war against the forces of darkness. And, you know, Lord of the Rings Online also gets that across too. So, we have a brief showing of the Watcher in the Water. Probably my favorite visual representation of the thing, actually. Very Kraken-esque. And it's not described or explained ever, so I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I just wanted to mention it, and it was cool-looking. Uh, quick thing, though. He actually has less tentacles presented than he should, literally because they couldn't render that many at the time. <laughs> funny, funny fact. So what is Mithril? I've actually brought this up on stream before. Uh, some people still argue to this day what exactly Mithril was or is. We don't know. Uh, Tolkien was never properly asked, and obviously we can't ask him now. Is Mithril a completely fantasy element? Was it inspired by real-life metal? We don't know. Uh, the best guesses I've ever heard are, of course, uh, Iridium, uh, Iridium, uh, Iridium, Platinum, and Aluminum are the three guesses I hear most often. My personal guess is actually Platinum. Or no, not, excuse me, Titanium. My personal guess is Titanium. Uh, if it was based off of real metal. And Tolkien would know about those metals. Whether it is or not, who knows? I mean, we just kind of think of it as Mithril nowadays, or Mithril, if you prefer. 
There's a great line by... There's several scenes that just play out as is. I don't have much to talk about them. Much of Moria, I don't have much to say. But there's a great line about the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. And I like that line because it's it it's critically important and indeed is actually the crux of the finale of the entire trilogy in showcasing how just one tiny little thing can affect everything. That is probably the single biggest theme of the movies as a whole. Little things having a big impact. You know, even the smallest person can change the world. And it's the most obvious theme, and it's the one that's most predominant throughout the work. But of all the ways it's presented, that line is probably my favorite way it's showcased. The fate of, the, 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 the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. Then there's the great build-up. We cannot get out. Also one of my favorite quests in Lotro. We cannot get out. And I wonder how long they were there, too. And there's so the build-up, the grave, the noise. Gimli is shattered. This is probably the first time Gimli gets any real characterization is during Moria. And then Pippin accidentally sends off the noise. And then there's silence. And everyone gives a visual, visual, oh, thank God. And then war drums. Now they do something really cool. Uh, first of all, we see, like I said, we see a little bit more into Gimli's character. His, his grief, obviously, at the loss of his kin. But also his, his rage at the situation. His, his insistence on doing something. On not just sitting here and grieving. He picks up his act and says, I'm going to go after these bastards. I'm going to be the last bastion of the dwarves. There is still one dwarf in Moria that draws breath, you know. Um... It's actually kind of a foolish disposition, but it's understandable and it helps to explain his character, and that'll be mentioned later as well. But then the whole, almost the entire battle has no music. And it's an interesting choice because there's this wonderful buildup, and then the battle happens, and it's just chaotic, and everyone's fighting, and smash. The choreography of this fight is fantastic in the behind the scenes stuff. And there's no music until the 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 uh, troll starts to go after the non-combatants. That's the first time any actual music starts playing to emphasize the scene change, the fact that the battle has now shifted to its second and final phase, which is actually nice. Question for you. Do you think the troll just happened to want to kill Frodo just because? Or do you think he was maybe drawn to something? That he couldn't help being called to the ring like so many other creatures are, like so many other things and people are. They went out of their way to try and make the troll come across as not evil, too. They wanted it to feel like a caged beast that was just blindly lashing out against everything around it. And I think they did a really good job of that, so props to the animators. What happens next is probably one of the most textbook examples of inverse enforcement I've ever seen. Um, I've called that a few things, uh, negative enforcement or negative uh, establishment is another way I've, I've said that before. What I mean by that is when you have to establish something, as in this case, something big and powerful, you can have it show up and be like, Rawr, smash, and show it being big and powerful, or you could show something else big and powerful and then have the thing you're actually establishing either terrify them or defeat them effortlessly. And thus, the power of this bigger thing is established Thanks to the power of the smaller thing, right? That that's what I, that's the concept I'm referring to. But this is probably the most textbook example I've seen of this in a long time. We have a massive army of goblins, and they have we have just barely won a battle against them, 
And there are so many of them that are swarming us. They've, they've killed all the dwarves. We're doomed. There is no winning the situation. And then they hear a roar in the distance. And then they flee for their lives. The look on... Ian McKellen sells it. The look on Gandalf's face says it all. It's just, oh my god. Whatever that is that is coming terrifies an entire herd of goblins. Think about it. In keeping with the theme of the film, the way that Durin's Bane is presented is very much a slow build. First we have the roar, and this chanting music begins to play, and we'll be playing for the next several scenes. And then there's these goblins harassing them, clicking away at them from arrows from the crevices, trying to get at them and trying to stay away from them. We don't actually see the thing. We see, occasionally the camera will shift over and you see the, the terrain shaking, and, and, and it like it's breaking through the very foundations of the earth. And then they're trying to defeat this bridge, basically, to get across, which is falling apart around them as they're going through it. And then they manage to defeat it, and then the music shifts. Da, 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 da. We did it! Yeah! And then it shows up. After all that buildup, the Balrog actually shows itself, and I want to give a medal to the people who animated and designed Durin's Bane, because it's perfect. It is exactly the right combination of shadow and flame. It's brilliant, and it's exactly as large and horrifying and terrifying as it should be. And especially after that build-up, it just gives me chills, even still. It actually also inspired uh, some of the design from one of my own characters, uh, Hatred, based on just the idea of this living furnace and, and the, 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 the smoke, the black smoke, constantly billowing off the thing. And I hate to go into the books again, but keep in mind, this thing is of equivalent power to Gandalf. It's also a Maiar, just like Gandalf is, so... Yeah. But even regardless of the book, it's pretty clear Gandalf is not certain he can take this thing. In fact, he's almost positive he can't. And that brings me to a great scene and a great setup. Obviously, it's a great scene for all the obvious reasons, but the literary reasons are even better, because what Gandalf does is, again, classic literature. He outsmarts it. He preys upon its arrogance and upon its overconfidence. Because, let's be honest, the, the Balrog probably could just defeat Gandalf in a straight one-on-one -on -one fight. I know what ends up happening, but all, if everything else was equal and Gandalf didn't have that initial advantage, I think the Balrog could take him. Just my opinion. Even if that's not 100% true, it's pretty close to being true, because even with the advantage, Gandalf still frickin' died. So the Balrog is fully confident in its power, and then Gandalf flat out tells him, you cannot pass, you shall not pass, right? And then we see the thing just be like, oh, oh, we'll see about that. And it oversteps itself, and then it falls into the trap, right? That's brilliant in its own right, because Gandalf literally outthought his opponent. What makes it better is the fact that Gandalf then makes the exact same mistake that Durin's Bane did because he lets his guard down just like the Balrog did. And he relaxes, and he, he oversteps himself. He isn't paying attention, and the Balrog gets him right at the last second. And that's why Gandalf loses, too, for the same reason. I love the symmetry of it. As an aside, even to this day, that scene hits me. Even rewatching it, however many minutes ago it was now, that still hits me. Everyone's reactions to Gandalf's death are telling. 
The hobbits are paralyzed with tears, incapable of even functioning. It's just, oh, God. They have to be literally picked up. Gimli has to be physically held back from charging back in there, just like he was on that, again, this is establishing his character, just like he was earlier. He wants to go in. He wants to do something about it. It doesn't matter if it's suicidal. He wants to do something about this. He wants to show them how wrong and... Legolas is in total shock. He's actually in complete shock. He's showing no emotion of any kind other than just, I can't believe that happened. Boromir is, of course, empathetic. He, he This is a very important part of Boromir's character, actually. He cares. He cares about his people. He cares about his city. He cares about his fellowship, his group. And so he's the one who argues, give them a moment, for pity's sake. He's the one who sympathizes with them. It is Aragorn who has to step up to the leadership mantle and attend to the reality of it. And yet the great part is, even as he is becoming a leader, he is also wearing a mask. Because Aragorn is it just as emotionally damaged as everyone else. And we'll see this, actually, in the second movie, uh, better presented. And so he is handling his grief by locking it away in a cupboard and dealing with right now. Which, again, is what a leader would do. And then there's Frodo, who is in tears and alone. Boromir tries to comfort Frodo. And it's funny, because he himself has no comfort at all. He has this wonderful quote that I've actually said in my real life before. It is long since we had any hope. He loves his people and he loves his land, but he is a man. He's, he's one of the men, right? And like all men, he is weak by himself. And it is really hammered in here. He needs others. His core is simply too weak to deal with this. Now, I don't actually have that much to say about the rest of the film. Most of the battle, I could just mention by saying the battle. But we'll get to that in a moment. I want to talk about Galadriel. Uh, we get a decent amount of... of examination of Galadriel here. She is clearly the strongest of the elves. The strongest, the wisest. She's basically the Saruman equivalent. And what's funny is she has this quote where she says, the fellowship uh, dances on, er, on the knife's edge. Stray but a little and it will fall. Now what's funny about that is before she said that, as I was rewatching it this time around, I wrote a note about how Galadriel herself was on the knife's edge. And if she strayed, she would fall. And then she said the line and I'm like, ah! I think that was done on purpose, because that is exactly where Galadriel is. She understands exactly what that mentality is like. She is tremendously powerful, and she has Nenya, magnifying that power like all the rings do. And yet, it, it, is, it would be so easy for her to take one step in the wrong direction and turn into Saruman, give in to the despair that he has, give in to the hopelessness and shift towards, start going from A to Z, basically. And so she is, I, I picture Galadriel in this constant state of struggle and discipline and trying very hard to stand on this knife edge and not stray from it. I also love how she says to what. She mentions peril to Frodo. Uh, or, hang on, first she mentions Frodo, uh, you know, you bring great evil with us. She mentions peril to Gimli, Grief to Boromir and hope to Sam. And given how the movies go, I think that's pretty accurate. Galadriel has some very clear levels of clairvoyance. It's probably one of the most clear-cut examples of being a seer within the course of the movies. 
while she can't see everything exactly, she can see how things might end up. But there's an interesting point. She goes to the well. Now, she tells, she, she basically forces Frodo to confront reality. It's a very harsh and brutal thing to do, but she does it because she knows he has to toughen up in order to deal with the, in, the, the trials coming ahead, right? He has to confront the reality of failure. What I find interesting about that is it's never stated outright, at least in the movies, but the vision that he receives is the vision she's been receiving is the same vision that Saruman see, saw, is the same vision that Denethor saw. Anyone who has the access to either the tool or the technology, excuse me, or the magic or the seeing or whatever, has perceived this doom that Sauron intends upon everyone. And I find it amusing because from my own interpretation, it's not a possible future. It's just something Sauron is beaming into everyone's brains that he is actually projecting this possible future into people to inflict, inflict them with despair, to poison them with, with hopelessness and fear. It would be a very Sauron thing to do, wouldn't it? But she nevertheless forces him to confront this. This is the consequence of failure. And then he offers the ring to her. This is the second time he's offered the ring to someone stronger and better than him. First was to Gandalf, who... who struggled to say no. Galadriel then does the exact same thing to herself that she just did to Frodo. She says, all right, time to man up. Let's see if I can do this. And she confronts reality. The one ring is right in front of me, and it's being held out for me. And she goes full ballistic, too. I've often felt it was in the hopes of frightening Frodo away, but Frodo doesn't frighten away. He still holds it out to her. So she has to decide, she has to confront that reality, just like he did, and see if she can withstand it. She does. She does pass the test. She doesn't stray from the knife's edge. And that is arguably the first moment at which we see that one in a million thing kind of come, be rewarded, I think is the way I want to put that. Because, speaking realistically, that's kind of the, the, the situation she was in. She was vastly more likely to stray, vastly more likely to, to, to fall off the knife's edge, to become tempted by this great power and all that she could do with it, for good or for ill. But the unlikely thing happened, and she stayed right there in the middle, and she passes into the West and diminishes. It's a great scene. It's a great scene. And I really like Galatriel as a character, too. It's a shame she doesn't get more screen time, either. Sam's poem uh, <laughs> about the fire... Oh, I'm sorry, hang on. Real quick, real quick. She also gives this speech to Frodo. To be a ring bearer is to be alone. What I like about it is several people, uh, Aragorn later, Gandalf mentions this as well, and of course Galadriel here says, you, know, you must be alone. You must take this task alone. Only you can do this. And they say that from a perspective of wisdom and strength, like so many other times I've been bringing this theme up. And yet, they're absolutely wrong. If Samwise hadn't ignored all that and gone after him anyways, it would have been doomed from the beginning. Like, they, he would have never accomplished anything, but Sam goes with him, and that's how he succeeds. Because, and this is one of the things I like about the way this theme is portrayed throughout the Lord of the Rings movies. There's the perspective of, you know, the wise and the powerful and the big and the impacting, and then there's the perspective of the small and the little and the simple, right? And... In every case in the movies, the truth, 
the real path forward to really make things better is a combination of the two. When both of these ideas merge into something greater, that's when things actually happen. He did need to leave the fellowship, but he did not have to be alone. Remember, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I really want to end on that point. So, so getting back to Sam and the, and the fireworks thing, he gives this little, tiny little poem about his fireworks were great and kind of cool, and every now and again, I'd say they rule. You know, it, it's just like that. It's kind of bad, right? It's very amateur. But I love it. It's very Sam. It's the exact kind of thing like one of us, like I just did actually, would probably come up with on the spur of the moment. And I love it because it showcases again how both can work together. Because these elves have this great, beautiful, kind of chanting song hymn celebrating Gandalf. And he just gives this simple little song, this simple little poem, excuse me. And yet both of them have the same impact. Both of them have the same heart behind them. In other words, you don't have to be some great, magical, mystical elf to be able to have an impact on those around you. Again, that's the most obvious theme in the whole whole sexology. So then she gives them the supplies. Now, almost all of these are Chekhov's guns. We've got the Lembus. That'll come in later. And, of course, Hobbit metabolism again. We've got the cloaks. Those become mandatory later on. The bow that Legolas uses a lot of in the next three films. The daggers given to the little hobbits, who also get a lot of use out of that. The elven rope, which is extremely useful to Sam in the future. And then Galadriel's hairs, which is the only one that doesn't really pay forward. Now, to break from things a little bit, I know about the whole lock bearer thing, and I know about the whole Gimli finally goes into the West thing, and I think that's awesome, by the way. Like, the only dwarf ever allowed to go is Gimli. He, he's earned it. He's awesome. Gimli's a fantastic guy. But, uh, I find it interesting that they left that in the movie. It's a nice scene, don't mistake me, but it, it seems completely out of place considering everything else. Everything else is something that is direct foreshadowing, and something that will be used in the future. As far as Gimli, the only significance it could be considered to have, and this is theoretical, is that it showcases how he's starting to open up as a character. Remember, his first character trait, and his only character trait for several scenes, was, I hate elves. And even, there's actually quite a bit of elven and dwarven bias on both sides when they're in uh, Lothlorien. And yet now he is actually, you know, I shall call nothing fair, uh, if it, except it be her gift to me. And emphasizing that he now has value in something elven, and which will also help to foreshadow his eventual friendship with Legolas. I know in the books he becomes friends with Legolas in Karas Galadorn, but in the movies he will grow to become friends with Legolas over the course of the next few movies. And I think that's the closest thing I've got to significance of the gift for the for the development story-wise. So I mentioned here the threat. You know, all the threats, I, I kind of talked about this already, We've got, you know, the, the, the Ringwraiths, and then some goblin scattered tribes, and then the Urukai. We haven't actually fought Sauron. We haven't even really fought Saruman yet. This is all build up. And then, uh, Frodo offers, I, I want to talk about the Aragorn thing first really quick. Because Frodo, the, for the third time, offers the ring to someone stronger than him. And for the third time, someone strong, someone better than him, uh, rejects it. Aragorn, is tempted. You can tell he's tempted, but he he manages to resist it. And he gives it to him, 
and he has the will to let Frodo go. Again, the, 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 the wise perspective there, I need to let Frodo go, contrasted with Samwise's simple perspective, I need to go after him. But what I really want to talk about is Boromir. The final battle is good stuff. I don't have any real thoughts about it. It's, it's your usual good second unit stuff and some first unit stuff as well. But it concludes Boromir's character arc. It'll actually get a little more fleshed out in flashbacks in the future. But obviously by his death, he does finish. His character arc is finished. But the good news is his death, his death happens after his character arc finishes. He is weakened by his caring by his desire to help people, by his desire to uh, to do his, his immense despair at the reality of the situation he's in. If he had seen that vision that Frodo had seen, he would have buckled under the pressure of it. It's the proximity that really pushes him over the edge, though. He is a strong enough person to resist until it's literally him and Frodo alone, and the ring is right there, in visual range. And it's that proximity that finally poisons him to the point where he acts completely irrationally. And then he screams out and rages. And then there's a couple of different interpretations of what happens next. Because either Frodo hits him, and he trips and stumbles, or he just trips and stumbles in his own right. I personally like the second interpretation better, even though the former is more likely. Because what it it's a literal visual metaphor for what he's going through. He trips. Then he gets up. And the spell's broken, the poison's gone, and he is Boromir once again, and he realizes his own weakness. And it's probably the first time he really acknowledges his weakness. Because everything up to this point has been, you're the strong one, you're the tough one, you're the one who has to be the great captain of Gondor. Now again, some of this is fleshed out in Flashback's future, but he's the one his father's relying on. He's the elder brother. He's the one all the men salute to. He's the one who has to be the strong, great, mega man, you know, it is only now that he finally acknowledges his own weakness and in so doing embraces that as part of him and decides, screw it, I'm doing something anyways. Thereby becoming a hero by refusing to let his own fear stop him while not actually fully defeating that fear. It's a nice little thing there. And he fights and he, he charges up and, and it's, it's his shock that, that pushes him forward. And it's a great contrast to the earlier scene where it was Boromir and Merry and Pippin and they were doing this little play fighting thing. Now they're fighting for their lives and Merry and Pippin are, cannot abandon him any more than he can abandon them. What's the first thing he says when Aragorn comes over? They, they took the little ones. It's the first thing out of his mouth. Because that is truly his most defining trait, his caring for other people. And he keeps fighting, even weakened, after being hit in, in, in three times with arrows. That would hurt like hell. The sh Sean Bean does a great way of portraying the shock as he's literally losing proper control of his limbs as the fight goes on. And then he says, I have failed you all. And that is truly probably his greatest pain. Knowing that he was not able to overcome his own weakness and do good. And yet Aragorn reassures him, you have reclaimed your honor and I will not see the White Tower fall, nor our people fail. And that just hammers the point home for Boromir. And in his final moments, he is comforted. And of course, this is how the, 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 the theme of how men work plays, plays, plays out, and will be a very strong port, part of both of the next two films.
because Aragorn by himself didn't really manage that much, and Boromir by himself didn't really manage much, but into, in, when they actually managed to unify, they accomplished great things. And we see the spark of what could be. I would follow you, my captain. You know, my brother, my captain, my king. And that bond that the two have as Boromir is dying showcases what might have been if they had been unified from the beginning. Which also makes Boromir's death quite a tragedy. And then, despite all the wisdom and experience, they even bother to have the, the voiceovers going so that you understand that what Frodo is doing is the wise choice. He's abandoning the others and he's leaving and I have to go. And he is doing it for the wise reasons and the intelligent reasons. And Sam chases him because he made a promise. A simple reason. Not an incomplex reason, not a dumb reason, a simple reason. And thus, the movie ends on that great point. I mean, there's a couple more scenes after that. They're going to go after Merry and Pippin, and you know, we'll never see them again, and blah, blah, blah. But I really love that effectively the movie ends on the point of, that I mentioned earlier. That with simple reasoning and con complex reasoning together we now have an actual path going forward and real hope. The movie does end on a note of some optimism and hope as Frodo and Sam now have a choice just as the remainder of the Fellowship will not abandon Merry and Pippin. I have no idea how long this video is. I'll find out in editing, I suppose. My throat is killing me. I thank you for joining me with this and I will be seeing you guys next week for The Two Towers.